This is Season 3, Episode 8 of the Language Mastery Show. I'm your host, John Fotheringham. In today's episode, I chat with my friend Sam, who is a professional Japanese translator and one of the best Japanese non-native speakers that I've met who's learned Japanese as an adult. In the episode, we talk about how he learned Japanese, how he became a translator, and how you too can try to break in to the translation industry. For show notes of this episode, go to languagemastery.com slash show. And if you want to support me and keep the podcast going, I would greatly appreciate if you check out my Japanese learning guide, which is called Master Japanese, and that's available at japanesemastery.com. The guide shows you exactly how to set up an immersion environment, which will teach you Japanese no matter where in the world you happen to live. And you can do it in a fun, natural way instead of forcing yourself through boring textbooks and expensive classes. All right. Enjoy my conversation with Sam. So here we are. Um, here we are. Joined today with Sam, uh, who's a professional Japanese translator, uh, which Hello. I know some of the listeners have aspirations of becoming just that, or maybe some already are or dipping their toes into it. So we're going to dive into some of uh, your backstory, how you got into translation, some of your tips on folks that if that's what they do want to pursue, how to, how to best pursue that. But let's okay. start with the Japanese language side is first. So uh, yes. I always like to start with the origin story. So if this were a comic book version, a manga of Sam's life, take us through this origin story. You know, how did you get into Japanese? <laughs> sure. You know, what's, what was the spider that bit you that made Japanese of all things, the language, you know, you could have done something like Spanish or French or, or no language yes, at all. Yes. So, so why Japanese? Well, if we're going with my, my anime backstory, first off, I'd have better hair. So that's unfortunate. It's not true. But, but as far as Japanese goes, I, I studied Russian when I was younger and I did a bad job of it. And years later, I was still interested in language despite having no real success in my life with it in any, any language besides English, hopefully. But you'd have to ask people from that point in my life. <laughs> If that's true or not. But then I, I found this chance to go to Tokyo, and I never really thought of Japan too much. I, mm -hmm. Looking back, I did like a lot of Japanese media. Mm -hmm. I grew up playing a lot of role-playing games, which are very much I, a part of Japan or something that is identified as a Japanese export. Yeah, I did not think of it as such. Um, so anyways, I just stumbled into this, and it was fun it was interesting and mm -hmm. you had to know words to buy food you had to know right. words to not get lost and japan had quite a lot of english signage back then but less than now and mm -hmm. it was very just usable and i was forced to discover that trait by failing to board the right train mm -hmm. which might have very well had english that was probably just me <sighs> But, you know, like um, you get bored of just buying packaged food. So you want to learn to ask for things and that makes you look up the grammar. And mm -hmm. there's there's an immediate payoff, isn't there, when you're living in country. So, right. For better or worse. Yeah. For better or for worse. Yeah, it can be a punishment, too. But, yeah. you know, like Russian was always theoretical, really. You're right. And it wasn't. So I was pleasantly 
uh, what's the word? I was very inspired to keep yeah. going and I just wanted to know the people and it felt so different than, you know, the Pacific Northwest where we're both from. And I just went back and kind of grounded out really. So is this in high school that you did the exchange or college? No, this or? was in the middle of college. Yeah. Okay. And it was that, that Sorry, was part of your school just... program and then you went over yes, for school? And Yes, it was uh, associated, what's the word? There was a relationship with the university I was at, and mm-hmm. then it was really interesting to me, and I realized that I... see my kunky, or sisters, like sister school kind of thing, or... Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, yes, and uh, I was I was on a different track for more businessy, but to be honest, mm-hmm. I, I wasn't entirely sure what I was doing. I just thought I'd do something do that would get me... Age. I certainly don't know yet. <laughs> I don't know don't take that as I've <laughs> made any progress <laughs> as a human. Um, but uh, since then, but um, no, but anyways, yeah, it was really great. So I remember going and thinking, where's a, you know, reputable or not reputable, but a good Japanese language program mm-hmm. back home that I could get into. And then I remember writing my essay at a lunch break in Tokyo and transferred to the university I transferred to and it was very just, this is what I want to do. I was pretty shocked by that. Kind of snuck up on you. Yes, yes. But um, yeah, I went there and met lots of people. I helped the exchange students out and mm-hmm. it was fun. I just got to use it. And then, I don't know, it was just very, I knew I wanted to do something with the language and mm-hmm. it all felt very alive, I remember. Mm. Yeah, it's addictive. I think once you get a little bit of that taste, like you said before, you know, you learn a little bit of the language to ask about food or ask directions, and then and then you get a response. Like they understood your question, and then yes, you understood yes. their response. Not not necessarily at first, but with enough practice, you you start having these two way exchanges, and then you're like, oh my goodness, I'm actually communicating. I'm <laughs> yes. engaging with this culture, and that's that's like a narcotic almost. Absolutely. And one that you don't really, at least for me, I didn't recognize until it happened. I knew it would Mm. be interesting to learn that, but it felt very different than I had anticipated. It was kind of like a childlike glee of, you know, Mm. I've, I've, I've done something. And that made the 45 times prior to that where I did not do anything. Right. right. Worth it. Right. Right. I mean, if I can turn this around on you though, I know that you lived in Kobe or the area in Hyogo. Mm-hmm. And then I know that you studied uh, in undergrad. Correct. The language. Yeah. Did you have any experience in Japan before that? What led mm-hmm. you to that? No, I, um, well, okay. Yeah, I did. I did study in university. Um, I, and then I moved to Japan right after I graduated for two years in the jet program. Um, I did visit once. I think, uh, what would it have been? 2001. Actually, that's funny. I was I was there during 9-11, and then I got stuck there an extra week because all the flights were canceled. Oh, wow. And I didn't have enough Sorry. money. So that was an interesting... I don't know why I laughed. Yeah, no, it was just, it was just a, of all the times, yeah. I In a way, it was a blessing, you know, because I got to spend more time there. Um, but that was pretty early on in my, my Japanese journey. So I, I definitely was struggling linguistically to get around. Um, but yeah, what the, what originally got me into Japanese, it was kind of, kind of like you, it wasn't this, there wasn't one necessary moment or anything that 
that made it all crystallize. It wasn't a spider that bit me. You know, it was, it was, I think a little <laughs> combination of factors. Um, I think one of the main things is as a kid, my dad did business in Japan. So I do remember him bringing back toys or foods or things from his business trips. Cool. So that's kind of deep Very in cool. there. I mean, when I was like four or five years old. Um, and then more recently when I started university, uh, I got into martial arts and in my martial arts group, there were a number of Japanese exchange students who were in the, in the club. And right around that same time, I took a linguistics class that I found so fascinating that I decided to change my major from industrial design to linguistics. Uh, and then as part of that, you needed to choose a language to focus on. And so I thought, oh, you know, Japanese would be cool. I have some Japanese friends. And so that's kind of how it all started. But sure. Um, but I think kind of like you, it wasn't, it was all kind of theoretical until luckily I didn't have to wait till I got to Japan to, to have that connection of, Oh, I can actually have this real time, you know, exchange. Uh, as I said, there are a lot of Japanese exchange students at my school. So I would actually even go into the square at Western Washington university, literally go into the square and just talk to other Japanese exchange students, sometimes even ditching class instead. <laughs> uh, and I, I found that so much more helpful and I, I think my progress was a lot more rapid than those in the static classroom yeah. memorizing information about Japanese instead of actually practicing in Japanese. Yes. Yes. It's not to say that classroom learning can't help. I just think that so many, and I don't know your thoughts on this, but I think a lot of people fool themselves into thinking it's sufficient when it's at best helpful, but I don't think it can be sufficient on its own. I was just speaking with someone here about something similar, which is that for me, I consider it scaffolding. Mm -hmm. For instance, having that time in Tokyo and come as when I was an exchange student and then coming back and grinding away for about a year made me comfortable enough to start talking to people. Mm -hmm. If they were open to that, because a lot of the exchange students there were there to learn English. A lot of them were there for the requirement. You've been there. Oh, yeah. We went to the same university. Yes. I just wanted to chill. Yeah. Um, so. Uh, but so I fully recognize that that would have been better from day one or people who were able to do that, who have that personality. I would imagine progress at a much faster rate than I myself did and would if I were to learn another language. Or I assume I would. However, I needed that scaffolding just to feel confident and have the courage to chat. Mm -hmm. So I don't know how that was for you, but I I recognize it's not a good use of time. But I, knowing my personality, I need it for sure. Yeah. No, I, I I do think having some structure and having some conscious meta linguistic awareness, as they would say in linguistics, um, about how the language works is helpful. Uh, I think it comes down to balance. I think what I have seen so often, you know, with my own experience as a learner, with my experience as a teacher of languages, you know, interviewing other polyglots for this podcast, um, traveling the world, you know, I've met so many people that stay stuck in the academic side with this belief that they're not ready to start practicing. And so they keep putting off and putting off and putting off practically think I don't yet have enough scaffolding. You know, that's kind of the lie. And what it is, is no, you're afraid to communicate because it is scary. It's real time. You know, Very much you so. can't look up words 
in, in your dictionary as you're talking. Well, you could, but it's a little awkward, right? You can't pause the conversation <laughs> like you can on Netflix, right? It's, it's real time and it's scary and it's intimidating and there's ambiguity and uncertainty. Um, and yeah, that is uncomfortable and there's no way around that. But what I've come to believe is no amount of study for most people is ever going to be enough to not feel that fear, discomfort. So at some point before you feel quote unquote ready, I think you do need to jump in. However, this is, I'm a huge believer in, you know, this from my nutrition training, but this idea of bio-individuality, like what works for you or me or another person isn't going to be identical. So I think you do have to figure out, okay, what, what's that balance point between having that scaffolding and a structure before you dive into the wild world of, of output versus, sure. you know, it, you know, somebody like Benny Lewis, for example, you know, his whole thing is speak from day one, like literally day one of a language, start moving your lips. And for some people that works, other people that might be too, too much too soon. So I, I do think there's, there's a little bit of nuance and a little bit of uh, tinkering and figure out what works for you. But universally, I can say almost everybody, I think, waits too long to start output. That's, that's probably something I can say for sure. I know I did for sure, sure, sure. for sure. Um, and so now, I mean, I'm learning Spanish right now, for example, and I, I'm planning to start like working with a tutor way earlier in this process than I would have, uh, when I was learning Japanese first or then Mandarin after that. So, yeah. On that note, mm -hmm. I myself don't have Spanish, but I hung out in Southern Spain a bit and it was so intimidating to talk to people mm -hmm. and I could say it's because of the accent, but it's really just, it was intimidating to me. And I remember going on, I talk here. Mm -hmm. I think it's, it is, was I talking? I remember going on there and talking with other Spanish speakers mm. and I, you know, I pay for this. Right. Um, because it just felt so much more comfortable than going and talking to the millions of people living in that city, which is very interesting. hundred percent. Yeah. No, I think yeah, that's and, a um, common experience and that's why I do really recommend yeah. tutoring to people. Even this is kind of going to sound crazy people. Even if you live in country, like, let's say you live in Japan already. I would still honestly go on italki and work with a tutor on italki because it's so, there's just so many ways in which that structure and that format is ideal as a language gym, like a language dojo where you're really refining. Not only is it recorded, that's nice, you can record it. They can type stuff in the chat for you. So you have a record, right, of words that came up during the call. Whereas in person, probably that won't happen. Um, it's focused. There's not distractions around you. Um, yeah, I might go on and on. It, it, it does have its disadvantages too, right? You can't see their whole body. So you're losing some of the body language and, um, you can't tell what shoes they have. Right. Right. Yeah. Which, you know, we tell you a lot about somebody, but, but anyway, it really affects the flow. Yeah. It does. It really does. Um, no, but, but it's, it's, if I can jump in, um, please. I remember asking the people I spoke to, A, can I record just the audio? And just that was a lesson in itself to do this correctly in Spanish. Um, but then I said, you know, if you know the word in English and I'm really lost, yeah, let me squirm if you wouldn't mind. Like while we're speaking, if you don't mind, I would prefer just completely Spanish. Right. And if I'm just obviously drowning, then mm -hmm. if you could type the word in English, mm -hmm. that would be a nice separation for me. And they were of course great for it. And I think it really, I don't know. I thought it helped again. I, mean, I didn't make a ton of progress, but 
it was, it did convince me that's probably the way to go. Right. Yeah. Well, how is your Spanish, by the way? Sorry. Uh, Sorry to interrupt. Eh, it's all right. I mean, it's, it's still very, very early days. So I, I'm definitely the, you know, the input output pie. It's still much more skewed toward input. And that's okay with me because I, I don't have an immediate need for it. It's more of a, a nice to have, not a need to have, um, which in itself can be a problem, I think, with motivation. If you don't have an immediate purpose for it, just like you said, with Russian, it was just a theoretical thing. But then you're like, oh, I'm actually going to Tokyo or I'm in Tokyo. Then you have that immediate purpose. You know, you can focus on, I love that idea of just in time language versus just in case. Sure. Uh, you know, some good JIT steal from Toyota. Uh, uh, I just find mm-hmm. that you, you remember it so much better when you're like, I'm about to go to the, you know, electronics shop and, and try to buy a SIM card. So now I need to, I need to learn these words, no, for, right? SIM card. And, and on that note, I, I went to Russia several years ago and was surprised how I did gather some passive understanding mm-hmm. and, you know, was able to buy tickets and stuff. And of course I had to review it, but right. It, there was an immediate need for it. And I feel like I 100% learned, like I took the train from Vladivostok to Moscow. So it's just eight days. Oh, all just. Russian speakers. <laughs> Is that all? <laughs> but um, that's yeah. all right. Yeah. 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 It's like, like a commuter, but um, right. no, but it's like, you know, there's just no opportunity to speak English or my middling Japanese at the time. Yeah. Um, and it did help a lot. And it was, I think I learned more in that eight days than I would have in six months of, self-review or something right. but or self what's the word reviewed on my own but yeah yeah because it's active you're activating you know yes. you're you're spotting holes filling holes activating probably a lot of very passive knowledge of the language that you'd learned years ago and probably even forgotten that you even still had in your head and that's a really interesting process i i really find it fascinating how that works that you never really fully forget anything things just kind of, you know, fade, the, the tracks or the connections sort of deteriorate, but they're still there, you know, that information's still there. And then once you jiggle that neuron again and reconnect it and sure. lay down more myelin, it's like, oh, it's, it's back. Uh, I've had that with Japanese. I mean, I, I lived in Japan 2003 to 2005. So it's already been 15 years since I was there. And I've definitely gone through long periods of time where I didn't speak any Japanese for extended periods. I mean, my four or five years in Taiwan, for example, that was just focused on on Mandarin and other periods since then. And as I've been going through, especially recently, periods of trying to reactivate and relearn, it's it's amazing how how quickly things come back. You know, maybe I'll have a tutoring session and I'll I'll try to say something and then it's not there. Then I'll remember it, and then the next time it's boom. You know, it's right. It's right there. Yeah, yeah. It's fascinating. Especially, do you not find, especially with Japanese, the mouth movement is so different than our dialect of English at the very least, yes. if not all dialects. And that's the part that and takes I, time to come back. Yes. It's the mouth muscles. Yes, and I, I yeah. lived here, exactly, and like just, yeah, everything about it. And I lived here in Japan on my own for a few years and then left the country and then was back home in the States and it was super hard to speak then. And it just didn't feel natural. I would open my mouth too wide. And right now, of course we don't, it's, I don't think that's likely to happen again. Cause I use both 
languages every day with my wife. But I do remember that where I'm like, no, I, I think I've got this, but it just sounds so like my mouth's full of marbles. Yeah. And yep. That's a good way to describe it. It was frustrating, man. Yeah. Like really frustrating. Yeah. Cause you used to have it. It's like being an, an, a former athlete and then you get injured or something and then you lose <laughs> yeah. your muscles atrophy and then yeah. you, you have to learn to walk yeah. again. It, it kind of has that. You're 20, you're 20% heavier, but thinking yeah. you can still play basketball. <laughs> right. I used to play tight end back in high school. <laughs> But this bum knee of mine, yeah. you know, yeah, I have a bum <laughs> knee in my Japanese. Maybe that's it. Uh, so, so going back to your, uh, your journey then with Japanese, um, yes. what, so I, I've, you know, we've, we've spoken in Japanese before you have yes, a, yes. exceptional skills. Um, most people, I mean, someday, someday, uh, some you're, being, you're being humble, you know, and don't give me mad, I'm out of this. I'm not going to take it. Uh, <laughs> so most people that have tried to learn Japanese uh, never get anywhere close to your level. What is it you think, other than just obviously spending the time and being in Japan, you know, for a good number of, of years total, what is it that you think you did that led to your level of fluency now? I'd say there's several things that looking back mm -hmm. really affected things. One of which is that I was awful at it even like i say in tokyo it was a transformative experience for me but i was bottom of the class 100 percent. Mm. and when i went to western washington university alma mater I, alma mater <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> um no but yeah just it was bad i was told that directly by people at some points and i was the i was the worst or amongst the worst and i don't say that in a sad way but objectively mm -hmm. I was quite bad at it, um, but kept going. But I think being so bad at it made me willing to sort of do whatever I needed to in Japan. Mm. I think if I had been pretty good at it, I would have liked that feeling because it does feel nice to be able to speak. But I hadn't tasted that yet. I was terrible for years and years. And again, grinding away, that's the only thing I had going on really besides eating lots of pizza. Um, so I found this job, which was teaching like yourself in the public schools, but it was in a rural area and it required Japanese, mm -hmm. even though mine was very rough, very rough at the time, but I would be teaching. It was like a pilot program where instead of doing the pronunciation lessons and the grammar repetition, I would be teaching elementary school students and there was no homework. There were no tests. You mostly would teach them in Japanese and then wow. move to the English. Mm -hmm. But the entire focus was that they feel open to foreign people in foreign languages. Mm -hmm. So if they could speak at the end, that's great. And by speak, I mean, I want to go to New York to eat pizza, that kind of thing. Because they're, you know, they're very young. But they didn't, there was no pressure. I remember the final exam of sorts, which was just, you say a sentence. I noticed that First off, their pronunciation was great because there was no stress. But second off, the kids who didn't want to speak were allowed to not speak. Mm. So that's very unique. I've found now that I've spoken to more people who've taught here and probably taught in other places as well, I would assume. But going back, I'm sort of getting sidetracked. But again, it was ruled. There was no one else from a Western country. I think I ran into one other teacher at one point, but this was 
this is Japanese Japan. Yeah. Not to say that other places aren't, but there's the international aspect in the city I live in now, Kyoto and mm-hmm. Tokyo for sure. But back then, you just had to do everything if you wanted to extend things. Someone could have helped you, but there wasn't a lot of help going around. Which isn't to say that it, I wasn't taken care of. I very much was. But if you wanted to do things efficiently, you were kind of on your own. So that's pretty inspiring in terms of vocabulary acquisition. Yeah. Yeah. And again, you had that immediate um, need. You had that drive yes, yes. to get things done and to have a life. Yeah. That, that. yeah and, and say, this is my first job after graduating from university. So I have mm. a salary. I'm going to go buy some things. I'm, I still want to have hobbies and stuff. So... I think having that year where there was no option besides Skyping friends and family, mm-hmm. which is hard enough as we're finding out now with the, the time difference. Yes. But, but again, being so bad at this thing that I've chosen to make my, my major <sighs> mm-hmm. school made me open to that experience, which was, I think, good for calming down and learning to try to live within the language versus looking at it and mimicking it. Which isn't to say it's accurate, but at the very least, not always thinking I'm a foreigner. Mm. Um, but it was extremely isolating, too. Yes. And I would never do it again. <laughs> but now I have a wife and I have a job that I like more. Mm-hmm. So I cannot imagine it. But looking back, it was pretty intense yeah. in some ways. And yeah, I was saying a few food terms. I'm, again, I'm talking to fifth grade elementary school students. Mm-hmm. We're not chatting in English. So mm-hmm. I would essentially just say these childlike basic words, really, not even grammar. And that was it for English for months, even though I would Skype occasionally. But yeah, I remember going back for the holidays and having my family be like, you're talking to us like we're... Yeah, you forgot English. Um, yeah, I can completely relate. That was my first year in Japan as well. I was in a very rural part of Hyogo. Yeah, and same deal. Like, not, I mean, not exactly the same professional situation. I was at a high mm-hmm. school instead, and but yeah, I do think that that kind of experience of being somewhere rural and not not having the option to fall into a, a gaijin bubble. Yeah. I think it's it's hard in its own right. I mean, it it can be lonely. It can be uh, almost traumatic to some people. But by God, if it doesn't help your Japanese improve real fast, you know, if you want to have any modicum of a social life, it's going to be in Japanese. So, yeah, again, there's that there's that drive. There's that yeah. need. And every, everything available for downloads, too. I'm assuming for you even more so. It wasn't really coming along at that point. No. It was yeah. kind of on the up. So yeah. if you wanted a book, there was 14 English book language books, but yeah. it just there's so much more in Japanese, it's, I would just choose to read it more. Right. I don't know if I would do that now. I think I might just get a Kindle, to be honest. Yeah, that's true. I'm very yeah. lazy. Well, very it's, lazy it's, job. It, I would use the word efficient. <laughs> Thank you. Thank K- you for that. Kindle's efficient, yeah. No, yeah, definitely <laughs> for, for foreign language acquisition, I... I love paper books. I mean, as you can see behind me, I have a whole bookshelf full of them, but yeah, you write them too. I do write them. Um, that's a, it's an affliction though. You need to stop, stop writing 600 page books. Maybe just write six, a hundred page books. I don't know. Anyway, that's neither. (laughs) 
but have you uh, thought of spending too much money at cafes? That's what I've been doing instead of writing books. I've done that. I've gone through a period of that in my life when we, my wife and I, uh, whom you know, when we, and she says hi, by the way, um, when Give we, my best. Yeah. I will, when we were getting out of debt, giving up my cafe habit was part of the deal. So I, I, I stopped going hardly ever. Uh, and then of course now with COVID, not exactly doing that now anyway. So yeah, good money saver, but I do miss it. COVID. <laughs> I mean, yeah, not so much. Yeah. I won't miss that. So going back to Japanese, your own journey, uh, I'm sure also, you know, many other Americans or other expats in Japan who, who have learned or try and learn Japanese. Um, what are some common mistakes or missteps that you see Japanese learners make or any kind of myths that you see, um, believed a lot one perhaps mistake and i don't want to say this in a summary fashion because i don't know everyone's situation but i do think it would be best perhaps to get a hold of the grammar especially given that it's so different than english mm-hmm. you cannot fake it not fake it but you know it's it's not a crazy shift from a english adjective to a spanish adjective if it's a latin-based mm-hmm. one that doesn't exist in English, Japanese, Japanese, English translations. So I think like we're talking about maybe with an online tutor or something like that, if you could get to where you can communicate however roughly, mm-hmm. then I think just moving here and trying to live in Japanese as much as possible. I think if you moved, people I met who moved here for a good gig kind of fell into the, the gaiji bubble that you're talking about. Yeah. They mostly hang out with British people, Canadians, right. Americans, Australians, and well, it's easy and it's it's, it's fun. Nice. And it's nice. Yeah, exactly. you make friends. Yeah, absolutely. And you have like, that in common. And, and you're me, you're an outsider here, and uh, you know yes, you can yes. all you're all going to experience the same culture shock, the same frustrations, the same you know my my boss said yeah. this or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's just it's so stark. How fluid you can speak. And again, going back, having that year where I just didn't speak anything particularly well. Mm-hmm. Like, I didn't compare it so much. Whereas, if I could go to a cafe or a pub or something and, you know, talk with someone from wherever, Chicago or London, then yeah, I would have chosen that almost always, I think. Well, I would have sure. told myself I'm going to keep keep Japanese going, but I would have chosen the fun thing for sure. Of course. It's easy. Yeah, we're hum- we're social animals, and we need socialization. Yeah. So, yeah, and I I yeah. don't want to be too hard on those that do go that do fall into these expat bubbles. I mean, definitely a part of my time in Taiwan, I, I I let myself fall into one much more than I would have, you know, preferred in hindsight. You know, because I had a bunch of friends from college that lived over there. That's part of why I went there in the first place. So, you know, I hung out with them probably way more than than I. Coulda, shoulda, woulda, for the purposes of yeah, learning who Mandarin. Who wouldn't, though, man? Who like, wouldn't, though, right? friends from back home. And, yeah. Exactly. So so I don't be too hard on that. And again, anyone who's listening, that if you do find yourself in one of those bubbles, like, don't beat yourself up about it. It's perfectly natural. But I do think it's worth stepping back and asking yourself, okay, what do I want most versus what do I just want right now? That's always the question I, I think it's yes. good to ask yourself. And trying to keep it non-emotional, non-anything, and just cause and effect, right? Mm-hmm. 
if you speak whatever your target language is with native speakers, ideally you consume that media, et cetera, et cetera, you'll make improvements. And if you talk to your friends from back home, you'll probably have a really good time. Yeah. So it's just, which do you want? For instance, I was just, I saw my wife off to work before we started this podcast and her boss is Australian. Hmm. So I was just chatting away with him. Mm-hmm. I didn't improve my Japanese or my knowledge of Japan's culture in any way, shape or form, but he's fun to talk to. So it was cool. Yeah. So I think, I think the only misstep is lying to yourself that, you know, reading an English book is not going to make you fluent in the language right? other than English. That's what you're studying. Right. So, right. and then, but there's no good or bad really. Just, yeah. And it's not binary yeah. either. You know, you can have obviously yes. some of both, you know, I, yes, yes. I, I think for example, like you can make a rule for yourself. Okay. Once a week. For example, I can go to the pub with my expat buddies yeah. and we can have a good bitch sesh or whatever, you know, or catch up. Yeah. But that's once yeah. a week. And then the rest of the week, it's focused on the target language. Um, Especially if you're focusing like that. If I can sort of interrupt both you and myself, I, I didn't have English speaking friends here. I would say like a few years ago, mm. just the city we were living in. We just didn't mm-hmm. meet anyone that I got on well with and wanted to know who was an English speaker. Mm-hmm. And um, this year, with the job that I just mentioned, through that cafe, mm-hmm. I've met a ton of people, and I get to use both a lot more. And yeah, I'm reminded of how fun it is to use both. Mm-hmm. And to switch so back I've, I've sort forth. of like come, yeah. come around the opposite and been like, it's just nice. And, you know, there's the added benefit for me of my wife getting further exposed to English. Right. And more than that, English speaker attitudes, the humor mm-hmm. and stuff. and. Mm-hmm. So I, I've met people here, though, who are like, we can speak both. I only want to speak Japanese because I'm living here yeah. and I don't want to know any foreigners. And they've done that mm. for like a decade. Yeah. But I, I myself, like I absolutely like both. Yeah. I like yeah. my native language as well. I, I think the problem is the extremes on, on either side. Definitely. Because, yeah, yeah I, I, I met folks like that, too. Um, and I thought that's eh, a little extreme because especially in that early phase when you don't yet have the linguistic toolkit to communicate your actual feelings and thoughts, you know, you need to get that out. You need to communicate with another human, what you're feeling, what you're struggling with at least once in a while. And I think, I think for mental health, it is not a good idea to go a few months or years without ever fully, truly, deeply, unzipping your soul and pouring out some of what's in there. You know, I don't think that's a good idea. So anyway. And, and on that note, I remember when I first flew back to the States, I did feel reverse culture shock. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. It's real. And I, I felt that a good four or five times where just the way people walk in the airports is different. It just, yep. and it should feel the most natural to me, but it doesn't. Right. And that reacclimated. Weird. To it. Yeah, it is weird. Yeah. Yeah. But now that I've done that and we go back, always for the holidays, sometimes more. And if we're, we're going to be going to the other country between Japan and the States, like we'll, we'll be going to both forever. Right. Cause we, like my wife and I, we have two countries now. Yes. So once you do that, like 10 times, you're like, ah, yeah, it's different. Yeah. Like I can't, I can't really recall what was so shocking. So likewise, when you switch between languages, of course it feels rough. And you know, if I don't speak English for a day, I feel weird. I don't feel very fluid the next mm-hmm. conversation and vice mm-hmm. versa with Japanese, but you just get used to it. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah. You get used to the discomfort, I guess 
is, is what happens. Yeah. I, I, I think jumping in being like, it'll probably be pretty rough until it's not is yeah. not a bad approach really. Yeah. I agree. Do you, do you speak Mandarin these days or do you have opportunities to speak mm, Mandarin these days? Not really. Um, I mean, I could create them and that was actually something I want, I wanted to circle back on about this yes. idea of immersion, uh, you know, in country versus, you know, one of my big focuses is how to create immersion back at home for yourself. Yes. That's one of my, one of my folk focuses, foci. I always forget that, uh, in language mastery, but well, we can come I back surely, to that. John, I surely don't know. So you can <laughs> yeah. go ahead and make it. <laughs> uh, focus. Anyways, focus, focus. Right. Um, no, I, <laughs> I've not been, um, not been speaking it, uh, very often. I would like to, um, actually what I'm kind of trying to build right now is sort of a structure in my week where I do two days, Japanese, two days, Mandarin, two days, Spanish, and then the last day okay. of the week, I have a bonus day where I can just do whatever I want, like French or some other language. Um, and so the goal would be at least one of those two days for each language, I would have a tutoring session for that language. So that's, that's what I'm working up to right now. Wow. So, like, cool. you know, like Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Japanese, Monday, you know, Tuesday, I'll talk to a tutor. And so that way I have all Monday to kind of like get it fresh. Then, you know, Wednesday, Thursday, Mandarin, have a tutoring session on the Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Spanish, do the tutoring session on Saturday. And then Sunday is kind of a day off just for fun, linguistic play, as it were. So that's kind of the ideal structure yeah. I'm, I'm working on, working toward. Um, yeah. But I've not kept my Mandarin up. Definitely not. I'm, I'm very rusty. Yeah. But again, I don't really have a, I don't have a need for it right now in my life. Um, I mean, the Japanese side of stuff, because so much of what I write about and have been trying to build tools for other, other learners as well is focused on Japanese right now. Um, that gives me a bit more motivation to, to focus on that. Sure. Sure. So. And, um, not to give away your personal information, but I know you'd mentioned that your brother's wife is originally from Japan. Is that she's Japanese? Yes. Act- that's correct. Yes. Um, yes. I mean, do you just funny? Cause everyone assumed I was going to marry, you know, I did have a Japanese, uh, girlfriend in college and then I, I did yes. somebody a little bit there. And now she's married to your brother. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. No, no. Unrelated, of course, but it is funny how things work out that he ended up yeah, marrying someone from Japan. Um, do you, do you speak Japanese with her? Is there, is that an so inspiration often, at all to communicate? A little bit. I, I try not. So there's a couple things. I, yeah, she's living in the States. I, in think the States I, I, polite, I know but... she's trying to learn English, so I, I don't want to rob her of hey, good on you. the chance to practice, but definitely when we do like get together for family gatherings, if there's something she doesn't get, that's critical to kind of the context. Sometimes I'll just drop a little in there to kind of fill in what's being talked about so she can participate. Um, that's usually what it is. Also, you know, it's kind of one of those things where I don't ever want to make my brother feel awkward about it or left out that here I am talking Japanese to his wife and something he doesn't understand. Do you know what I mean? Or somehow, especially while, especially while not in Japan. Yes. hundred percent. I think, I think that's a huge, no, I think that's, that's good on you. That's the way to do it. And I always admire people who can fluidly shift depending on whoever comes into the conversation. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's, and that's always interesting to see when someone's truly bilingual, how they, I mean, especially if there's multiple bilinguals together bilingual in the same language there's a thing in linguistics called code switching where they will literally yes. switch right between the two languages mid-sentence and it's super fascinating to me linguistically 
when and where they decide to switch. Because often it's whatever the word is or whatever the topic is, whatever feels closer or more comfortable in that in one culture or the other, they'll switch to that one. And it's super interesting. Because uh, from the outside, it looks <laughs> random, like they're just randomly switching between the two just to keep people guessing or something. But <laughs> but there's obviously some emotional, psychological switch. So they're like, okay, this is a this is for this language and that makes sense for that language. And they go back and forth. I, I, I remember hearing two people who were true bilinguals and from the same countries. Mm-hmm. Um, they shared both of the native language and the dialects. And one of them said something and switched almost every other word. Mm. And then the other person said, that's exactly as I would have done that. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Right. So that, that gives credence to this idea that it's not random. That yes. There, yeah. There's some, for some yeah, reason some, they, they pick the most efficient, the most expressive, whatever right. it was, but yeah. Yeah. I remember being like, that sounds great. I can't participate in this. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to drive. Yeah. I'm, yeah, I'm going to, I'll see myself out. Um, <laughs> oh, but on that note, like I'm, I'm absolutely not true bilingual and neither is my wife, but I like to switch a lot now that hmm. she has this job that's essentially English. There's a, a huge amount of expats come, or rather the clientele, if you can say that for a cafe, the customer mm-hmm. base, it's they're pretty well represented, like foreigners in Japan. Mm-hmm. So she speaks English to them. Often they don't speak Japanese. Mm-hmm. And then her boss can speak Japanese to a degree. And then, of course, the Japanese customers want to speak Japanese as they would. Mm-hmm. So she's switching back and forth now. And we've gotten to a point where we can do that fairly fluidly, especially if it's like cursing or humor or things that I just want to. Yeah. I don't prefer English. I just prefer my natural, my native language. Right. Um, of course. But we met, we met someone who said also international marriage. And he said, absolutely not. I cannot stand it. It sort of degrades the languages. Whereas mm-hmm. I think for my wife and I, there's Japanese and there's English and there's that kind of mix. Yeah. And, you know, like I would only speak Japanese with her mom. We'd only speak English with my mom. But sure. if we're around people who could speak both, then I personally love it. I don't know if that's good advice or not. But no, I, I think it's fun. It's like mental gymnastics also to kind of jump between yeah. the two. And yeah, to your point earlier, I think it's just a matter of empathy. You know, you're sensing in the crowd, mm. you know, like when, when you and your wife visited me and my wife, obviously my wife does not speak Japanese. And so we mostly spoke English in that context. We just, no, we just put her through the ringer. Yeah, exactly. No, but I do recall <laughs> there was a time she, I think she went to, went to the other room or something. And then we sw- switched to Japanese between the three of us. Cause then it made sense for that context. Yes. And I, yeah, exactly. I thought, I thought it, it just yeah, felt and, and, natural and it felt right to do that both ways. Yeah. Yeah. I would agree. Do you. Speaking of, of marriage and of being married to uh, a spouse who's a native Japanese speaker, yes. um, do you have any tips for people that are in a relationship with either Japanese boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, you know, whatever, somewhere in the middle? Um, if, as is probably often the case, if the, the English-speaking or non-Japanese-speaking half, uh, if their level is much, much lower for example, than the Japanese speakers half or the other way around. Do, do you have any advice on how to get those levels kind of up to a similar level um, or a way that they can start practicing with each other that's not going to harm the relationship? Because so often I, I do hear from a lot of expats that they say, I, I tried to speak Japanese, but I couldn't say anything. 
and it was harming the, the you know they didn't understand what I was saying or um they you know it caused a fight or whatever it, or it just wasn't practical so what what, right. what are your thoughts there well there's so many ways that can go mm-hmm. for instance if the i i think the comfortability of the person who's not not named let me let me start that sentence over i'll get more concrete because i cannot handle english apparently let alone japanese but um for instance i live in japan so if i didn't speak japanese at home especially since you know i basically if i didn't speak japanese i would feel less integrated if that went on too long yeah. i would feel less a part of society and this isn't a social country with strangers in general mm-hmm. so that can be very alienating because the only people that will talk to you often in say tokyo are the people who want to use you for english practice yeah. which feels bad if you're living here yeah and that's not i mean that's not great behavior on that person's part yeah in my opinion yeah however okay. um i i've also learned too that on the whole I find Japanese people don't go talk to strangers so often. Mm-hmm. It's not so if that happens to me, it's not centered on me. It's it probably would be the same treatment for my wife. So mm-hmm. there's a lot to unpack there. Um but so I think that you don't want someone to feel alienated from the place they're living. Yeah. But then once you do get up to speed or just comfortable and that can mean complete fluency or going to graduate school, that can mean you can order a beer. It's whatever that person feels good with. Right. Then I think it's in your best interest to maybe work on the other language. I have met people who don't care. Again, I really want to know everything that my wife says, particularly about her emotions. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to not be able to express myself sometimes. And I am always grateful that she can understand me and my native language when I'm emotional. Mm-hmm. I cannot envision it being, I don't know, like I, to me, it's an absolute indispensable thing. But again, I've met loads of people who don't really care. So I think I'm probably just a needy person. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, um, emp- no, I'm, I'm like, going to rebrand again. You're empathetic. Yes. You have. You, you. I, I love this. Yeah, you see, should be the translator. I'm your hype man, you know? You- <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine me like running into a boxing ring? You're hyping me up and then I have to try to fight someone. You've met me. Hey, who knows? It could be a linguistic battle. There you go. A, a like Japanese rap battle. Rap battle. What do you think? There we go. No, but um, but going back, no, it's, it's a great question to go back to the, the original question. And um, I think it's entirely based off your circumstances. But also, you don't want to stereotype. And it's down to the individual, for mm-hmm. sure. I'm very grateful that I'm just Sam to my wife, and she's just her to me. Mm-hmm. We don't, we're not thinking about our, the names on our passports. But we were raised in different places, so we were influenced by different things. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if one part of a one half of a relationship is just less likely to bring things up, that's not the time to say everyone can do this. That's you should be empathetic and then ask yeah. them more questions. Right. Likewise, some people don't want to be asked questions, so you know that cultural knowledge to a degree is useful. You shouldn't force it and say, therefore you're going to be this way, but it's a different place. So I think that's quite useful. You're going to need different things. You're going to have a different 
flow and a different level of comfort. And you've always got to be updating that. I think everything I thought about Japan and Japanese didn't go out the window per se, but it suddenly meant more to me and I wanted to refine it more after I got married. Right. Um, Which goes back, I, I know less technical words now than I did, you know, eight years ago, for sure. Hmm. But I, I know quite a bit more about how to talk about emotions, I think. Because mm. it matters and more. I mostly just, it matters more. And, you know, my, I work with it every day. I do thousands of words, but it's it's reading. It's mm. translating. Right. It's not. It's not active production. I'm, yes. Yeah. In, the, the, in the thought behind it, I'm not creating it. Right. Really. Right. I'm just trying to find a good match for it. But, um, yeah, I mean, my, my relationship with Japanese now is just my wife and her, her friends and her family. Hmm. And I'm sure, you know, we do meet people and it's great to talk to them, but it's really just about that now, whereas mm. it was much wider in scope when I was younger. Mm-hmm. I would imagine the same is true for English, but I can't say. Yeah, I think that checks out my experience as yes. well. I really want to underscore there's something you're saying here that I think is so important that there's the linguistic side here of communication with a spouse or a significant other. And then there's, there's the cultural scripts as well. And I think those are both so 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 important and i don't want to over focus on just the the language side of this and undervalue the cultural side because you do to your point you need both and it's not just a matter of learning words and structures to say how are you feeling or why are you sad right it's it's also knowing like when to ask such a thing whether to ask it if at all uh how to infer it because i do think one part of of japanese culture that is very distinct and different from American culture is so much more is inferred and expected to be mm-hmm. read between the lines. You know, it's much uh, in sociology, they call it, it's a high context culture, whereas America is a much lower context culture, meaning we tend to say things much more explicitly and directly. Um, we, you know, we say what we mean typically not obviously these are exaggerations and generalizations, but in general on balance, Right. Um, and I mean, you, you, you know, these cultures better than I do. So please do chime in with your own experience. This is from my, my two years there versus your many, many, but, um, does that resonate with your own experience? Overall? Yes. I do think that people in the Pacific Northwest can be quite indirect. Yes. Compared with with like New York or something, for example, that's true. So there's regional differences too, certainly. Yeah. And for instance, if you meet someone, you might get on very well. Could be alcohol fueled, could be not. Right. The next time you meet them, I will feel shy for sure. I'll almost not want to talk to them, even though I enjoyed the experience. Hmm. And then once we do talk again, I'll be really happy. But my initial thought is just like, I do want to talk again, but let's just leave it. And hmm. I've talked with people here who feel a bit similar, but that could just be my experience. You know, it's hard to say. I do think the degree is vastly different. I, I largely agree with what you're saying. I think there's enough of a shared point to j- jump on with that and be like, okay, that's a a bigger version of that. But it mm-hmm. doesn't feel alien to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also spent a lot of my adult life here. And even when I was living, you know, going to Western Washington University, there were so many exchange students and so many people around me that – it's been a pretty big part of my life, again, all throughout my 20s. Mm-hmm. Like yourself, you know, when you, you spend a decent amount of time outside the States, you sort of just 
even with English, it becomes this weird international, like less slang and what you talk about is different. And, right. You enunciate you know, more clearly, you speak more slowly. Yeah. And even talking with you now, it's like it comes back. But, um, <laughs> yeah. you know, if I talk to only British people or only Australians for a while, of course, it changes how you yeah. speak. And I don't talk about basketball so much. You know, they don't British people don't care about the NBA by and large. Well, I don't know, um, but maybe I'm not a good uh, <laughs> representative of that. I know I'm in the minority here. In that regard, secretly, secretly British, but uh, maybe, <laughs> um, no, but I guess that's kind of a big rambly way to say, like, it kind of all makes sense, but like, I don't know, like you live your twenties, it's generally pretty varied in terms of experience and it's different, but it's, it's not so different really. It's not yeah. for me moving from a, a pretty rural place. Like I know your wife and I are from the same place, but like she's from the, what, map, what, what's the word, the version of a city there. <laughs> yeah. But even just growing up, like on a, a family farm, like you don't have a bus or anything. You don't mm-hmm. do much besides hang out with dogs and uh, cows. So to go from there to the west part of Washington State, where now you're a train ride away from Seattle and Vancouver and yeah. BC. And that to me felt way more shocking than moving to Japan. Mm, interesting. Um, but, you know, I was also a kid, you know, you don't, yeah. your personality's not set. You're not particularly confident. So it's hard to say, man, because you only get to do things at whatever age you did them at one time. Right. And it's, yeah, you can't it's not control the same, the experiment. So you, do, you can't know for sure any of these things. Yeah. And, and yeah, we adapt so quickly, you know, there's this whole thing of hedonic yeah, adaptation, please. right? So anything, whether good or bad, very, very quickly, we get used to it. And then it's hard to even remember what it was like before that experience. Yes. It just becomes normal. Yes. Yes. Yeah. You can't imagine again with the culture shock that I mentioned earlier, I can't really recall what it felt like. I just know that it was a big deal to me for a certain amount of time at yeah. one point. Yeah, exactly. But, but kind of going back, so if I if there is any advice that I can say, I would say that there's going to be cultural differences, so don't decide that everyone's the same. Yeah. But likewise, it won't be so alien. Like when you really get past the surface part, the way things are inferred or not. Yeah. Most people here, I think, want the same things as people back home. Yeah. It, it It's... I keep doing layers where it feels different and then it feels the exact same yeah. almost and then different yeah. again. And yep. it's a weird onion. Yes. Of, yeah. I, I think that's a really good way but, to put it. Yeah. I, I, I've kind of come to think of yeah. not, this isn't true of just Japanese culture, but any, any yeah. cultures in general, whether this is American Japanese comparison or even, you know, Pacific Northwest versus Northeast or any cultural comparisons, yeah. it, it's sort of this bimodal clumping where, on the one hand, things are so different. And especially yeah. from the outside, for example, you look at it's easy to see all the differences and, and just how how unique and different they are. Then you go to this period where you're like, oh, actually, no, we're all the same. We're all humans. We all we all laugh, we all cry, we all love, we all, you yeah, know, yeah. we all suffer. And then you kind of go through another period where you go deeper and deeper, especially with the language, right? As you get more and more of the language, you actually can really engage and start going below the the surface level. You realize, oh, actually, no, things are different. Like, yes, we all laugh and cry, but we laugh about different things or we cry about different things or, yeah. you know, what makes us emotional is different. But then you go even deeper and you realize, oh, actually, that's that's just surface level. And the deep, deep, deep stuff is all the same and universal. So I don't know. And there's probably another and layer also, below also, that. And most people I've met, I don't know if this is the same for you, consider their native language to be the most difficult, the most eloquent, the best for humor. This right. is pretty shared by most people. Right. 
But I think really if someone from Manchester and someone from Houston yeah. were chatting, they might think they might not get the other's humor and thus think that they have more humor or something like that. Yes. But it, it's just you, you can't tell. And kind of going back to what you're saying, once you become aware of that, you won't go back to being ignorant of it. Mm-hmm. But when you who I don't know, you're ignorant of what you're ignorant of. Right. So you don't know what you don't know. So for me, too, like any set idea I have about Japanese or Japanese culture, I'm not terribly confident that it's based off anything really. And yeah. even with my wife, I, I mostly just know her. I, I know her region, right. I think, decently well. I know how her mom acts, but, yeah. you know... It's a microculture. I can't say... Yeah, I mean, you know that. You were in northern Hyogo. That's very different than Kobe, mm-hmm. which is very mm-hmm. different than even Osaka, let mm-hmm. alone, oh yeah, you know, Tohoku or like... Yeah. I remember I did, a, I did a hitchhiking trip across the country a few times, and just the dialects alone... Yeah, every every three amazing. people who give you a lift, yeah, yeah it's like, they change bit by bit, and then yeah. two days later, it's you know it's almost a different language. Like, right. well, not quite that far, but to my uh, not trained ears. So I want to change gears a little bit here and talk more now about your translation work. Uh, so I know a lot of folks that either want to be a translator or they see that as maybe what they could do with their Japanese one day. Uh, Yes. You know, especially I know a lot of folks go to Japan to teach English or that's sort of their in to get to Japan, but then that isn't really necessarily their calling. That is one they want to do with their lives. And they see translation maybe as a good pivot where they can still do something language related that isn't actually teaching English. So um, how did you get into translation and what advice do you have for those that are wanting to break into that industry? Right. Um, it was always sort of a stated goal for me to become a translator, but I of course didn't really know what that meant. And mm-hmm. it was sort of just a, the next step, as you say, after I'll move to Japan, I'll teach, then I'll translate, then who knows. But mm-hmm. while I was teaching, I would take the newspapers and see if I can write the kanji from memory. Can I translate it? And I just did practice in that way from months really. Cause again, I wasn't very good at Japanese. So I remember speaking with someone though, who was a translator and I was talking about, I'd like to do this, but, and this seems mm-hmm. so fun, but, and mm-hmm. she just said, you know, I think you're, it'll be hard, but you're at a level where you could get going mm-hmm. and surely you would figure out what you need to fix if there is a need to do so. So, um, just do it basically. Mm-hmm. And Good advice. You know, became my, became, became my mother or father for a few seconds. And then I kind of stopped bullshitting myself as much and, you know, just started. I think just getting started is the thing I would advise people to do is, you know, write a good resume and then practice. And if you, if you have the skills to where you can get work, just send it to companies, just get moving. Mm-hmm. And like by getting practice, grind away. Yeah. what does that look like? I mean, like you said, is that just find a newspaper article that's already been translated, for example, so you can give a stab at it yourself and then compare your translation to see how well you did or... What does that actually look like? I would do that. I would. I was not so clever. I just took Japanese newspapers and translated them and then just sort of gauged if it felt good to me. Mm-hmm. But I would definitely get a trans... I would definitely, if you can find a bilingual something, right. not look at the English and then try it yourself or whatever your target language is. Yeah. So, yeah, that's that's better. I should have done that. But, uh, <laughs> well, hindsight's but, but, for, 
Yeah. Right, right. But for me, I was also, you know, studying for a proficiency exam here. I was trying to improve sure. my fluency. I was living in Japan. Sure. I was trying to learn to write kanji from memory. And mm-hmm. it was all sort of tied in. Mm-hmm. And I think if you're learning Japanese and you have the goal of being a translator, you might have a different method than someone who's already has the language skills in hand. Sure. It is just looking to shift to that. Yeah. And I was very much the former. Yeah. I do want to point out here too, just for the sake of listeners that I think often there's a misunderstanding by a lot of folks that translation as a skill and being able to communicate as a skill, those two actually are pretty far apart. I think they can, obviously it could be a Venn diagram, you know, the better you can communicate in Japanese, the better you should be able to translate and vice versa. However, and I'm sure you've had the same experience. I knew a lot of professional Japanese translators in Japan who couldn't speak English. I'm talking, you know, Japanese people that were translating Japanese to English or English to Japanese, which another tangent, you're technically right. You're only supposed to translate into your L1, into your first language, not into a foreign language. That's kind of one of the rules, at least that I've been told. But, but I think it's important to remember that these are very, very different skills. So, um, just because you can translate well doesn't necessarily mean you can communicate. And just because you can communicate doesn't necessarily mean you'll know how to translate well. I think you do need to strengthen both of those things if you want to Absolutely. have those. Is that, would you agree Absolutely. with that? Okay. Yeah, 100%. Because most of my speaking these days comes from talking to my wife. And again, we have friends. We live in Japan. So, of course, I'm meeting people. But the really deep stuff where... I learn new things. It comes from speaking with her because I want to get to know her better. I want to express myself better. Right. I'm not inspired to do that in other avenues. But if I was just translating on my own and my wife didn't speak Japanese, or she spoke something else, or was an English native speaker, mm-hmm. then yeah, it would definitely just atrophy and I would imagine still be able to translate. But I don't think, I think I could lose the language entirely. I think they're, they're almost that separate. Yeah. But going off what you're saying too, even as a translator, I, I worked with, more technical stuff when I first started mm-hmm. and then did some creative stuff as well. But I was on a bigger project, like pretty for my, for my standards or whatnot, pretty massive. Mm. And it was a creative, not creative endeavor. That sounds very like a lame way to put it, but um, it was a, uh, it was a creative thing. It wasn't a contract. It wasn't a business document. And I was shocked at how bad my English writing was absolutely shocked and i'd felt good about it before but i realized Mm. i was translating what i can say but i lack knowledge of synonyms Mm. i lack knowledge of characterization and that was understood as the project i was coming in as the bottom rung and i learned just loads from people and to see what they corrected mine as where i was like that's the stuff that's what we want Mm. to have that was amazing so no regrets on that but i remember yeah i would always I always would have assumed that it'd be my Japanese that lacked that I was lacking mm. in if there was something I was lacking in. And it was still true. <laughs> still lacking in that. <laughs> um, but no, I was just like I had to have I had to like get a hold of synonym references. Yeah. And, it just occurred you know, to just, me started, that translating yeah, is was, also was writing. I, I guess I never really made that connection until this very moment. That if you are a Japanese to English translator, for example, you not only need yeah. to be able to read Japanese and understand it and understand intent and nuance and cultural references but you also now are a writer yeah, yeah. you're literally writing english because it, it's never one-to-one right it's always going to be you're going to have yeah. to use your creativity to figure out okay they mean this and a direct translation of these three words would be this 
But that's not, if I say that in wor- those words in English, it's not going to communicate the intent. And so I actually need to think of a, yes, another joke yes. or another idiom or another something that would be the cultural equivalent, even though it's not a linguistic equivalent. Is that a fair characterization? 100% could not have said it better. And, and going off that, most people in the States or Canada, or, you know, I usually do North, usually, I guess, United States, it's my dialect. But even just English-speaking world, they don't care about the stereotype, stereotypical guy from Hiroshima. Right. They do not know what that entails. They don't care. You know, like someone from Osaka is often made to be a Texan, kind of rougher, right. kind of commerce-based. Yep, yep. But then to further complicate it, I work with games a decent amount. And in video games, some people often want it to be as Japanese as possible. So you can leave certain things in, like you mm. can leave chan and you can leave, you know, right. they know senpai. That's they know senpai and stuff, whereas some people don't. Yeah. And you not only have to do it, you have to think, are we going for this? Yeah. Like the otaku crowd or right. should it feel like it was written by a guy from Brooklyn originally? Mm, right. It's right. Uh, huh. It takes a lot of, you gotta, you gotta orient your thinking, I think. And yeah, I, you know, sad to say, I, I don't think I had, I don't think I knew how important that was until this aforementioned project. So like, let alone, yeah, going back to translating into your second language, I, you know, to me, I cannot imagine that being a success, at least for my case. Yeah. I, I guess going back to the earlier conversation about being truly bilingual, yeah. maybe, but, yeah, yeah. but I think that's, that's a pretty rare situation. I mean, the vast majority, I think of folks listening to this, that are wanting to learn Japanese are, you know, they're grown up, they're adults already. And so I don't think uh, bilingual, true bilingualism is probably not in the cards. And that's okay, because you can sure. get pretty damn far with just getting, even just conversational fluency. I mean, it takes you so far, if that's what you want. Um, I so, find too, just as a quick aside, yeah. true bilinguals often seem to have a different degree or a different background that they match with language ability or they they seem very present in a in the interpreting world right. they're very fast they've got it whereas translation like the writing is still massive so you could be true bilingual and just not know how to write yeah i think quite easily yeah that's actually thanks very for interesting. bringing that up because I, I was gonna I, i'd forgotten to, to mention this too but for anyone who's listening it's really important again to distinguish between translation and interpretation those two are very, very different skills. I mean, again, to almost a point where you can be good at one and terrible at the other. Um, and, you know, while I worked in Japan, my second year, I worked in a government office and I did a little bit of both and was whole, I, I mean, translation was hard enough, um, but the days I had to interpret, my God, do I have a lot of respect <laughs> for interpreters. That is a rough gig. Uh, and I wasn't even doing yes. simultaneous interpretation. I was doing, yeah. you know, sequential or consecutive yeah, yeah. interpretation. That's still... Even that sounds like a nightmare, man. It's tough, man. You have no time. I mean, you, yeah, it's especially when it's technical. I, I still remember one of the crazy things was going to a... It was like a cancer research center. And someone was giving a PowerPoint. <laughs> and I'm in the back of the room, you know, with the microphone. And people that are native yeah. English speakers have the little headset. And they're listening to me interpret what they're presenting about cancer research <laughs> just struggling to i mean you cannot just, imagine just to understand what they're even saying let alone try to you know interpret it yeah so, yeah anyway. i don't know the english words yeah exactly exactly so i obviously uh, anyway it'd be so 
And you, you worked for the city or the prefecture. So yeah, the ward, right? The prefectural ward, like the office. The, yeah, the Kencho. Yeah. Oh, that'd be as formal as possible, too. Yeah, should have been also. But yeah, should my, my Kago was never <laughs> that great. So Kago's tough too. Well, like it's, proper, it's un- like it's not familiar. Not, not just like yeah, and like the desmas is one thing, but like actual Actu- proper Kago. Yes, yeah. I was told too. Desmas is always welcomed, which is sort of right. neutral yeah, mid-level the, Kago for your listeners. Yeah, Tainago, they probably just know. like yeah, Desmas form. It's like always, always going. Right. It's a good middle of the road. But like, but like Song Kago and stuff. I remember yeah. a coworker telling me, like, you should use Tainago. You should use it if you can. Yeah. If you're going to try anything higher than that, if you are able to speak enough to where you can attempt it, but then you make a mistake it will just be assumed that you're being disrespectful. Uh, so literally don't even try until you can do it. That's interesting. So I was of course like, yeah. I'll never try. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds boring. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think like all things, this is my own kind of personal philosophy, sure. but I refuse to ever call anything difficult. So I'm not going to call Kago difficult. I think it's just so rarely used by most people, especially, you know, you and I as a non-native speaker, we just don't get as much practice with it. If that's what you yeah. practiced every day, all day was just, you know, 24 seven K go, you know, it wouldn't be a problem. It would, that, that would be your norm. And then you'd adapt to that. And then that would be easy. And then you'd get rusty on the non K go. Right. And then that would be quote unquote hard because it'd be unfamiliar. That's at least. And to use, yeah, to use, to use K go too much too, is a cold thing. Sometimes it is, is what native people have told me. And yeah, or native speakers and yeah, there's just like, and again, once you're to that level where you're doing it, the uh, expectations for you, I think are quite different. Yeah. Yeah. It also, and, um, it, it, there's a status yeah. component here too, right? That much of how Kago structure works is it's all based on relative hierarchy and yes. status. And so if, if you are using lots of Kago or if you're expected to, that typically means you're lower on some kind of hierarchy yep. socially. Um, so it isn't necessarily a goal because if you're, if you're Kago all the time, it probably means you're pretty low on the pecking order <laughs> in any kind of <laughs> situation, you know, then the, you know, the shot show or whatever, the top of the pole, they just go, Ugh. you know, they grunt and they're fine. Like they don't have to, <laughs> they don't have to it's use true. it. Anyway. It's true. Uh, so back to translation. Kind of on, kind of on that note too, yeah. I've met, I don't know how your experience is. I met a decent amount of people here who say, I think we're all equal. I kind of reject this usage of Kago, yeah. which I can get on board theoretically, but then they'll sort of be like, I purposely use non-standard language in a way to sort of, in their eyes, create change. Mm. I was just like, they're just going to think you're bad at the language. Like, yeah. Oh, you, you know, they're not native like, speakers saying that. In Japanese, being like, I'm going to do what I think is a more uh, whatever, a more open right. way. But I think, like, for me, I like yeah. joking. The humor is different in Japanese. I'm less capable in Japanese. Yeah. If I just hammer away at the Japanese version of how I would joke in English, mm-hmm. it's not like everyone walks away with this new understanding of that humor. They just think, what was that guy talking about? They don't have a shared he, context. Yeah. Right. It's like raining it. He's he's terrible at Japanese. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I that's that's a whole other thing. I I I think that's that is woke arrogance to me. That's just you have this idea of what you think is morally appropriate or superior, and you're trying to force it on this other culture. I 
I, I, I think that is, um, it's rude, honestly. Um, I think if you see yourself as the liberalizer of any group of people, let alone another country. Yeah. Yeah. You're kind of a narcissistic dick, really. Yeah. Like, it's woke imperialism. That's what that is. <laughs> woke imperialism. <laughs> yeah. That's why I do term. We should, yeah, I should patent that. Anyway. I mean, but that, that in itself too, like I, I'm very well taken care of. And, you know, I feel, I feel good in Japan. You feel it's a respectful place. It's a nice place to live. Yeah. Um, anything that happens in Japan is going to be from Japanese people in terms of change. Sure. And that's, I think that's probably how everyone who's an immigrant or an expat feels. Mm. But it's like, I think you've got to get used to that where like you can stand up for yourself, but you know, countries change themselves. So yeah. and, and your opinion does matter. Not sure. terribly less, but and, and you can, you can have conversations less, about these issues. I mean that yeah. you're not going to change one's mind by refusing to use some widely accepted structure of the language. Right. right? right. So you master yeah. the language well, so you can have a conversation in Japanese about these nuanced issues. Cause there are, I mean, there is still, Rampant sexism in Japan, no question, right? It's not as bad as it used to be, but it's still way behind, I think, a lot of other countries. There's still, I think, a lot of uh, unacknowledged racism. I mean, there's this idea that, oh, we just we don't have that problem. We don't have racism here. That's an American thing. It's like, no, you just don't have enough diversity where it becomes <laughs> a common daily issue that you have to deal with as much. It's probably changing, I think, now that some of the immigration policies and um, with the grain society and, you know, needing to have more, um, labor coming in the country. I think a lot of this stuff's going to come to a head. Um, but, but anyway, yeah, so there, there are issues and I'm not denying sure. that, that there isn't a place for a, a conversation and trying to help move some of these issues or at least make them something that's discussed. But yeah, again, I, I just, I feel like there is this, uh, <sighs> there's an arrogance about, well, I know better, you know? we do things this way where I'm from and, you know, we're further along. And so I'm going to help pull you kicking and screaming into the, this enlightened, uh, you know, Western way of looking at things. So as if we have it all figured out ourselves, you know? So, yeah. So circling back to yes. translation and getting into the industry, yes. um, where do people start? Is this a matter of, you know, are there certain websites where someone should set up a profile? Are there freelance companies? Are there places they should send their resume? What what is it, what are the actual practical steps if they want to get into that? They should make a resume and then send it to people they want to work for, and then ideally say why. Having chatted with quite a lot of people who you know do say they want to enter, how do I do it? Um, that seems to be the step that's most missing. And then I would also say that. You can look up resources on what to do, but the truth is for anything, no one shares their best advice right. because they're utilizing it. Right, right. And I know for me, if someone chats away and then eventually says, can you send me work? Mm. They want to skip the queue. Mm. I politely never talk to them again. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, And that's, that's just how it is in life. So if you have any urge to do that, I'm sure I did, honestly, like – you know, years ago, I'm sure I did that to someone and they stopped talking to me. So I only, <laughs> um, moved away. But um, so I would get that out of your system and just, you know, I don't know. I, I worked a terrible job and then just not terribly. I worked a job. That's mm -hmm. not what I wanted to do. And then just, you know, made that my job. If you right. don't have work, then you should be looking for it. And I think most people will probably struggle with actually doing that and not in like a blog way, but to really work like that. And yeah. you don't really get payoff. 
probably for months, really. Or even years, um, maybe. Yeah, I mean, to me, to where it was just replacing minimum wage was quite a while. Yeah. And to get to where it was like, well, this is a job now. That right. was, so probably, I would say this, it took me this is probably a side hustle type thing to begin with, or even just a side, uh, you know, investment in a future side hustle, even. Yeah, it's like if you want to get out on the road or you want to go to Japan or there's something you want to do, of course, you know, do it six hours a day. Yeah. Even if you work another job. If you have another job that you like and you're thinking you want to switch into that, then yeah, take it at a relaxed pace. Mm. Um, but I think the key thing is that nobody cares about you or me. So you're solving a potential problem for them, right. which is they need something translated. So that's the only thing that matters in your relationship. Yeah. So to realize that took me a bit of time, I think. And um, also, no one's searching for people, really. So maybe a highly specialist, you know, like the cancer research you're talking about. But, you know, like no one's looking for – no one's spending an hour looking for a, a Japanese to English business translator online. Yeah. So if you're not telling them you exist, then right. they'll never know. Yeah, be on the yeah. radar. Um, is a lot of it referral-based then or – or once you've done a job with one person, then they're much more likely to hire you again. It's that. It's that. Okay. It's the second one. I mean, I do get referrals because if someone, you know, switches companies or something like that. But yeah, for the most part, I don't particularly want to find new clients if I have them, if I have enough work. Mm -hmm. And they don't particularly want to find a translator and vet them and send them a test. And they right. just want to work with you. So, you know, it's 10% it's of the work to maintain a client, I would yeah. say. And about how much, on average, how many hours a week do, would you say you're? Are you actively translating these days? Is this before or after COVID? Because that's the huge difference. Uh, that is a good question. Let's say before, and then let's compare it to now. Okay, I would say. I mean, I'd say I was working pretty close to fifty hours for the bulk of the last few years, but that was because I wanted to translate video games, and I didn't have the skills. When I just wanted some work, I was had a much more relaxed schedule. Mm -hmm probably 30 hours behind the computer, mm -hmm. you know, 25 ish of which was translating. But, you know, I, I hit it pretty hard the last few years and I like the work. So that was nice. Now, of course, it's very relaxed to use a positive term <laughs> inspired by my friend, John, to do. Um, but, you know, it's also, that's another good question too. Do you want to translate, you know, you might have the skills to do something or just one of the more prominent fields in which case yeah get on with an agency you'll probably be okay if you do want to translate or subtitle japanese comedies then you're gonna have to work hard if you want to do anime a lot of people do that for free as a hobby so oh wow that's yeah, so it's like i mean free yeah yeah it's not great quality but if you're a company a lot of people go freeze all right sure. so sure if you want to do manga or anime which i don't do uh so often then yeah i think it's going to take a long time and you're going to have to put in a lot of hours. Mm -hmm. If you have a legal background and fluency, you could probably become a contract translator with less work mm. or not work. Your work up until that point will have been immense probably, but right. Do you think yeah, so like, specialization yeah. is a, a good idea yes. for a lot of folks to kind of differentiate themselves? Yeah. 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 I think, um, I think volume, if you can make it a good quality, like don't just spit out trash. I think that's the key for the first bit of time because it's, you know, it's hard to sit and translate for eight hours and focus. Yeah. But after you get, I think you should specialize as soon as you can. 
But for instance, I do a lot of contracts and terms of service and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You dress code sometimes. And I really like it. I like how logical it is. And I would never have guessed that until mm-hmm. I tried it. Hmm. You know, and like I started with a very basic one, I remember, like, yeah, just some kind of terms of conduct. And mm-hmm. then it's like, well, what's an outsource contracting like? And again, these require an immense amount of reading in English to, you know, like legalese is very different than English. Right. Right. So, right. And you have to know what is an outsourcing contract. And it just takes a lot of yes. time, especially at first. But that said, like, I, again, I, I like it. I like doing legal stuff. There's other avenues I might not want to do so much. So you're. Instincts would probably be accurate for the most part, but you might be surprised, you know? So be open, I guess. is a, Yeah. No. Yeah. I, I, I remember, um, oh, I always forget his name. Um, doesn't matter. Anyway, he, he's a entrepreneur guy and a really successful one at that, but he's had, he's, he's managed to build a very, very, um, is it John fathering him? No, I, that, he is not that guy. Not yet. At least, um, Oh man, I can't remember the name. Oh well. Anyway, he he had this great bit of advice, which is when you first start off in any career, you should say yes to everything because mm-hmm. you don't know you don't know where anything's going to lead, and you have the time and you have the fire. But then, as you get better and better and better, you start saying no, and you start being a lot more selective. And then, um, ah, Derek Sivers, that's who's the guy. Okay, uh, he wrote the book Anything You Want. He was the founder of CD Baby, which he ended up selling for a gazillion million dollars which all the money is going to musical uh, teaching charities. So he's a good oh. dude anyway. Oh. Um, but yeah, he, he said then once, once you are getting popular, so I could see in the context of translation, if you really knock it out of the park and now you're starting to get lots and lots and lots of work, you can probably start to be a little more selective, right? You can, you can decide, okay, I'm going to focus on only these kinds of contracts or these types of, of jobs or these types of companies, or, or I'm only going to, you know, I'm only going to help companies, for example, that I believe in or that I like what they're doing. Yeah. Um, I imagine that you get more choice. But to get to that point, yeah. the point being that you have to first get a lot of work under your belt and say yes to a lot of stuff. So I think that maybe is relevant I, here. I would agree. And, and also, like, you don't have the skills or the stamina. And you're probably, if you're anything like me, I think people who are interested in translation are probably a little soft when it comes to how much work they have to do. Mm. I remember not, it was more than I thought it would be. And of course I yeah. put it off for months and then I was up till yeah. ungodly hours doing what I should have done earlier. And yeah. for me, I definitely needed to feel the fatigue uh-huh. <laughs> to, to stop doing that. Um, but you know, yeah, just, it'll be a lot of work in general. Right. Is there a rough average that people should expect in terms of obviously it completely depends on the content on their japanese ability but just general broad strokes is there like a rough average of what people should expect for like one page per hour like you know is like a like a page per hour type rate or something that is a rough middle of the of the road that you can share or is that just impossible there is one but i will never share it with anyone okay and and (laughs) I would go as far as to say, nor will anyone else, unless they have a blog or, uh, okay. you know, like something, um, another avenue. Oh, but, I, I just realized is because it, you don't want the, you don't want people to have that number because then they're going to try to lowball you on contract prices or. Uh, yeah. Just like, again, people keep stuff close to the chest. So yeah. the, and I've, I've bought books and stuff, you know, like I've done 
I definitely did a lot more reading and stuff when I first started, but you know, why would you tell someone? Yeah. Is I really get it. what it comes down to. Yeah. yeah, yeah so no, I understand there's, there's, like again, a, I, there's a I magic this too. art yeah. here. Yeah. Are there any particular resources or books that you recommend for translating specifically? No, actually I I've okay. picked up random ones, but just do it. And that could, yeah, just like, I mean, they were good because I, I lacked the, the will to do it myself. Mm-hmm. But they didn't – it's like signing up for a language class makes you go to class, which can affect your learning. But you still ultimately do the memorization yourself, I right. think. Right, 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 right. I mean, of course, you need – you know, having like native speakers and stuff, that's quite different. But uh, maybe a better example would be once you pay for a gym up front, you're likely to go because you don't want to waste your money. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, books and websites were kind of like that. Yeah. I've invested money and time, but they all pretty much just told me to write a resume and send it out. So, right. and that resume, I'm assuming that that needs to be bilingual as well, because you're probably working with people of potentially both native languages. Is that accurate? I mean, yes, in particular with the target, not target, like for Japanese and English. In that case, if you want to work with Japanese companies, definitely, and at the very least, it makes yeah people feel more comfortable. You can communicate in both, but. I would say English is, you know, obviously far more accepted. Right. If you're working with an agency in Paris, they're going to communicate with you in English or French, not Japanese, most yes, likely. And, yes, indeed. And, you know, I think specialized agencies, too, they're not translating themselves there. Hmm. Their skills lie in other avenues. But then again, there's, there's literally thousands of agencies. So mm-hmm. I can't even say if my experience is indicative of much. Well, it's indicative of your experience. That's for sure. Yeah, but yeah, but it's, you know, it's like uh, like I happen to work with lots of French and English university or not universities, uh, agencies at the moment. Mm. Um, and I don't know if they're just present in Japanese English translation or it's just who wrote back to me. Mm. Some other person could maybe only work with Canadian companies. You know, I don't really know. Be. Not mm. terribly great advice or useful <laughs> advice for anyone listening. But well, but it's no, but it, I, it's the truth, you know. And that's that's always good to know what the lay of the land is here and. I, I think that's uh, when people are just starting out. They just they don't they don't know what they don't know. And I think at least if you can block out some of the canvas of of uncertainty, yeah. so they at least know where not to waste their time. And to your point, if I'm going to summarize here, it's like just start translating to get the experience, yeah. build build a resume, and connect with people directly, and let them know why you versus someone else would be the right choice to help them to solve their problem. Absolutely, and and I would say too, like. Uh, if you haven't, you'll need another job unless you're, yeah, you know, extremely lucky financially. But and that could be a a career job, quote unquote. That could be a part time job. It's mm-hmm. whatever your life's like. But you won't replace that with translation terribly quickly unless you mm-hmm. get lucky and are extremely skilled. Mm-hmm. So you know, you don't need to put all your eggs in one basket in a sense. And by that I mean there might not the combination and subject matter that you wish to do might not pay for your life Hmm. and it might pay for your life or you might shift into another thing. Again, I like contracts and that's obviously there's more demand for that than there is for, I don't know, like coffee slogans or something. (laughs) Um, But I think, you know, being realistic about like, if you, if you're a paralegal and you're fluent in say Mandarin or Japanese or Korean, you can probably have a pretty lucrative life. Yeah. Whereas mm-hmm. it just might not be the case. Is the demand there? Is there a bilingual community that can already service that need? For instance, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. I think you got to have that Venn diagram of things that you'll be happy doing right. and then things that will give you money. Right. I don't translate my hobbies, you know, because there's no, work, there's no demand for it. So yeah, and that's all right. I, th- 
Yeah. Yeah. So like not lying to yourself is really what I'm getting yeah, at. Yeah. No, setting clear, that, so that, healthy, yeah, that, realistic that's expectations. I think that's always good. So, which like, and again, for me, it literally took me years to yeah, kind of open my eyes, so to speak. Would you do anything differently going back? Uh, and I mean this both for becoming yeah. a translator, but also for learning Japanese. Is there anything you do differently? I'll hit the translator one first. It's pretty much what I just said. I would try to, if I could come to that realization earlier and just mm-hmm. start working, I would definitely do it. I would have started doing it on the side while teaching in Japan. Mm-hmm. I think that would have probably been less of a struggle than working a part-time job in, you know, back home in Washington right. state. Um, you know, and other you're using the language every day. It would have been more of a connection, I think. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I think, yeah, just if I could speed that timeline up, that would have been great. I will say, though, and this kind of ties into both, I would not do a degree in Japanese. Obviously, again, as I mentioned several times, I was not very good at it. I'm not particularly talented in that sense, I feel. I just hacked away. So maybe I needed the years to hack away to get to this point, Mm. whatever point I'm at. But if I could, you know, just hopefully have an understanding now and do it again, so to speak, then... No, I would definitely just translate something that seemed interesting, but also that there was demand for. And I would study Japanese, but I would do a different degree entirely. And then I would just save up some money and then go to a language school in Japan. I think a Mm. year of that would, six months of that really would give you far more actual exposure and confidence than a full degree did for me. Mm -hmm. But obviously you need that degree to work in Japan. So, you know, that's how it went. But um, if I could do it again, I would say, yeah, entirely different degree, save up six months to a year, work part time. Mm -hmm. I think that's a better recipe than what I did. Mm. Sage advice. Yeah. Yeah, It's like if you want to be a marketing translator, who wouldn't hire a bilingual guy who has a marketing degree? Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Because like I have the work history now, but it was immensely difficult to convince people to give me a shot because they really just have my word and people like it. Makes sense to me. What about for you? Would you do linguistics again? Because language is obviously your career. It's a big part of your life. Yeah. Yeah, it has been and it is now. And definitely, I don't, I didn't need a linguistics degree to do the things I've done. Um, I could have definitely just learned the things I've learned. And much of what I have learned, I learned on my own anyway. I mean, there's not a whole lot that I learned in linguistics that I think I can apply directly in what I, what I've done, but it was just so bloody fascinating. And that's really why I did it. it I, I never, I didn't change sure. to that major for, for professional reasons. It was, I just, I love this stuff and I want to consume it as much as I can and keep digging down into this endlessly fascinating rabbit hole, you know? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't know. Um, part of me thinks, yeah, maybe I would have just done a business degree or something and that would have, that way I could use that in any field, but, but probably not. I think I would have, I would have done the same. I, I think I would have, um, I would have switched sooner because I, I didn't switch my, well, I didn't really know that's what I wanted to do until my third year into school. So I had to kind yeah. of start over and do yeah. a lot of, uh, I did summer quarters to make up credits and took really heavy credit loads to try to catch up. It still took me more than four years to finish because I, you know, had to kind of go back to the beginning for a lot of stuff. Sure. Sure. But, uh, yeah, no regrets. You know, I, I'm pretty happy with how it all worked out and I've not only done language stuff either. I mean, I've, I've dabbled in, I've probably had by this point, five major different careers in different, completely different fields. And 
it's been really certainly, fascinating certainly. to get kind of real life MBAs in a way in, in different domains. And I, I'm going to, I'm going to jump back to what you're saying now makes me think for linguistics. I don't think there's much that can stand in place of a university level education and undergrad level education. Whereas language specific, there are certification tests, proficiency mm. exams, mm-hmm. and again, language schools and stuff. So you could come away with the knowledge and a way to show that knowledge to people. Whereas, yeah, I guess if you're doing a lot of degrees, such as linguistics, I imagine, then there is no exam for that that I know of. So yeah, I guess no. it's, it's actually quite different now that I'm, I'm saying it out loud. Yeah. And I guess to your point, though, you could have, you know, if you were to re-engineer this, um, yeah. You, you could do a marketing degree or whatever, still hit the Japanese hard and then get, you know, get EQ on the JLPT or something. And so you have that proof, so to speak, of your level. But then you also have proof that you have the domain specific competence in this other field and then combine those two together. I could see that being a really powerful combo. Yeah. And I would I would say just knowing Japan, marketing is always useful. Business is always useful. But if you can pull off a STEM degree and then mm-hmm. walk away with EQ, the highest level in the national exam or the language exam for Japan, the Jap- Japanese language proficiency test. Yes. Um, officially. Then yeah, if you can do that, like and walk away with a difficult to acquire degree, then you're pretty sorted, I think. Mm-hmm. But go- going, another thing going off of what you said, I, as I mentioned, my work really ramped up, up to COVID like nice mm-hmm. projects, just mm-hmm. things I wanted to do. And, you know, there were loads of months, years where there was less work than I wanted, mm-hmm. like just enough to get by. Like, and mm-hmm. it wasn't particularly satisfying stuff. So there was kind of a mania that came with that, which was just like, this could disappear at any moment. Right. And then it didn't for really about three years, like not a lot of days off, but I was always like, until the next one came in, I always wanted to have one ready. Mm-hmm. Having finished your day's work, you don't need to touch it today. Maybe don't need to touch it tomorrow, but you do have another assignment due next week. That is by far the most satisfying feeling compared to not having anything lined up. Um, But all of that came to a grinding halt with COVID. So when I read about it in China, I just started trying to establish more in Wuhan originally. Like Mm -hmm. I just remember trying to establish contacts with people as fast as I could because I was like, if that comes here – it's going to be rough. Yeah. So I sort of front loaded the first few months and then you know, there has been a drop and I don't think it's, I don't think that's unique to me. Mm-hmm. Um, but one maybe good thing, which is like, I cannot wait for the work to pick up again. I'm looking forward to it. But yeah, that like 50 hours a week I mentioned, I, I don't think I'll go back there having, having a, it's been like a forced vacation, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, like cooking loads more and just hanging yeah. out with and having more just chill time with my wife. Yeah. Obviously, it's a really scary time for everyone. It's very stressful. But there has been that aspect where I'm just like, yeah, and it's good to sleep eight hours a day, you know? Like, yes, it is. Be health- and I'm, I'm in my 30s. So, you know, I probably the the point in my life where I can just punish my body is very quickly coming to an end. So, yep, yep. at least without immediate debilitating consequences. Yeah, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Dude, I, I got fat over winter. So totally not connected to it. But like had a lot of work and I was just like, yeah, dude, you deserve cookies. I got fat, man. So that's been my COVID battle. It's easy to do. I I am grateful that uh we well, Rose, my wife and I both, we uh we started 
kind of eating super clean, at least as we define it, uh, which is a whole other conversation. But uh, in uh, I started right before Christmas, actually. And so I I kind of skipped the normal Christmas uh, indulgences and uh, have just stuck with it since. And it's been pretty miraculous because I've now that when, you know, when COVID came along, I just kept doing what I was already doing. And I think had I not had that momentum and those habits, I would have, oh yeah, I would have, I would be in a very different place health-wise right now for sure. Dude, the, this thing where it's like you've lost your job or been furlonged or whatever, mm-hmm. and you're kind of worried about the world. If you don't walk away with the six pack, you just lack so Like who believes that? No, everyone's going to be stressful. Like everyone's going to be stressed out and eating cake. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, we all, we all handle stress differently. I, I think, um, yeah, again, on, on both sides there, there's a lack of empathy and understanding. I, it, it has been interesting though, cause, yeah. uh, for me and for my wife, like we, we have just based on what we decided to do and, and for many factors, like we're healthier now than ever. Yeah. Our, our businesses are more on track than ever. Um, but I say that also knowing that so many people are suffering this. So I don't want to like show what I want to say. I I'm aware of the suffering. I'm not denying it. And I'm not yeah. saying like that. Oh, you're wasting, you know, this beautiful opportunity. If you're not crushed, like you said, if you don't have a six pack and you're not, you know, writing that book that you're, you know, somehow lazy or it's like, no, no, no I understand that, <laughs> that the sky's falling all over the place. And, uh, um, I will just offer that that you have a choice though. I think on any given day you can choose how you want to respond. You can't you cannot control this virus. Uh you cannot control you know the the chaos happening around the world of you know around social injustice and other things. Like you can't you can't control all these things, but you can control how you act. You can control how you think. You can control what you do with your time. And so I would just offer that whether it's learning Japanese or becoming a translator, starting a side hustle, whatever it is, you know, you can today decide, okay, I'm going to at least start this process and I'm not going to let the the craziness out in the world stop me from this and put off my dreams any longer. I'm going to I'm going to decide today to start. So Yeah, yeah. Okay, soapbox time over. I will step off <laughs> the box. And I will uh, I will offer final final words to Sam. Uh, if somebody is just starting in Japanese or wants to uh, maybe take the plunge into working toward translator, any final words of encouragement to get them going or to keep them going? I'd say yeah, like uh, like kind of what we were talking about earlier. Like you kind of remember stuff, you pull it out. Um, I don't know if that was earlier in the conversation or before we started, but you know, like things come back mm-hmm. once you learn something. And so even if it feels like you're plateauing, you're probably making a lot of progress in general. If you're true, you know, if you're truly learning and I don't know, get to Japan someday if you can. And once you're there, just say yes. Mm. And you will, and you'll probably be very uncomfortable at some points. Mm-hmm. So make peace with that. And a little discomfort never really did any harm. So just keep trucking away, I guess is really the only thing. Yep. Yeah. Getting, getting comfy with discomfort. That's such a huge, that's like one of those secrets of adulthood. I feel like that 
the people you see that are successful at it's usually what what it is is they just they're willing to put up with the suck longer than those that are not you know <laughs> sure, sure. yeah yeah like do do one second of the suck so yeah. to speak and it's yeah. like you'll i think second two and on is easier it's just uh yeah, yeah. getting get started. started isn't it yeah. yeah 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 jumping into the suck pool but then once you're on in, that note, it's not so cold. Once you're in. Yeah. yeah. I was going to ask you too. I obviously we're wrapping up, but yeah. um, was translation interpretation hard for you? Like you said, the cancer oh, thing was very intimidating, but was it alien to you at first? Oh yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely struggled. Um, translation is, was easier in the sense that it, you had more time, but it still took me yeah. a lot of time to do it. Um, I, I realized pretty early on that for me personally, I didn't think that's what I wanted to do with my life. Um, yeah. It wasn't, I didn't, I didn't feel a pull to it. It wasn't my calling, but I found it interesting. Um, yeah. And I definitely enjoyed kind of what we talked about earlier that you realize that it's, Oh, it's not just translating. It's also writing. And I have always liked writing. So I did enjoy that part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, it was, yeah, it didn't, it didn't come easy. Definitely. No. And but neither did Japanese as a whole, and I think just like you, I I also really struggled. And I still do, but definitely in the, in the beginning, uh, it was not easy. And I think a lot of folks, when they f- see somebody who speaks some language to some level of fluency, they assume they have something that they don't that they're that it's easy for them, but it's hard yeah. for for me. And what I've learned more and more again interviewing all these polyglots and and successful language learners eventually. So many of them struggled a lot for a long time and that didn't come automatically. It's just either they figured out a better method and then that finally worked or usually what's the case, they developed a love or a passion for a language or a culture and then they were willing to then endure that suck as it were because <laughs> sure. they loved it so much. They they were so passionate about it. Uh, they were so curious about it. And then that's exactly you know what you shared earlier as well. Like once you you kind of fell in love with it and you're willing just to keep plugging away. And, uh, I think that's, that's what it comes down to. Did you have to force yourself to plug away both with the language and with the translation interpretation job? Yes, very much so. Okay. Um, I mean, yes, it got like anything, the more you do it, the easier it gets. And, um, with languages in general, the more and more I realized that, uh, how different passive recognition and active production are mm-hmm. that just became more and more clear. And so I started spending more and more time practicing active production. And that's something I think I, a lot, when we talk about like plugging away, I do kind of go full circle. I think a lot of people spend way too much time on that passive recognition stuff, toiling away, reading a book, memorizing a, you know, a kanji dictionary, whatever it is. And then still are unable to speak. It's because, yeah, duh, you haven't practiced speaking. You know, what did you think was going to happen? Did you think there'd be some magical sure. transfer from being able to decode something with your eyeballs and be able to produce sound waves out of your mouth? I mean, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. It'd be like research. Happen? It'd be like researching the effects of heat on egg texture instead of just like making omelets. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, maybe, maybe not like that at all. Now that I've said that, that's I'll bad. take it. I'll allow it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
I was going to ask too, and uh, I'm sorry to keep extending. No, no, no I will let I, you go. I, but I wanted to hear too, like, what's your, what is your study methods, or what's your, how are you approaching Spanish? You know, do you mm. use Anki? Do you? We t- we spoke a bit about Italki type lessons, yeah. but yeah, I so I I try to just get a good balance of all four skills. So on a you know on any one of those days, whatever the language focuses that day. Uh, you know, I try to get some listening, some speaking, some reading and some writing. Um, definitely the balance could be more ideal. Uh, it ends up usually being much more listening and reading than speaking and writing at this point, but ideally those would be pretty well balanced. Um, and so, you know, the reading stuff. So for Spanish right now, um, my friend Ollie Richards has a great series of short story books. And so I'm going through his one for Spanish, which is great because then you're learning this in context okay. language. Uh, I think he's going to make one for Japanese at some point as well. So that will be cool for, for Japanese learners. Uh, for listening slash reading both together, I am a huge fan of there's a Chrome extension called Language Learning with Netflix, which will actually it'll add subtitles for whatever you're watching in both the target language and also your native language Oh, great! at the same time. And even better, you can click on the words as they go to get a, there's a little pop-up dictionary so you can hear it pronounced and you can see what the definition of is of, of each word as you go, if you want to. So that's a really slick way to actually get more out of that's media. Great. So it's not just passive listening. You're actually, you know, I'll pause it and I'll look things up as I go. I try not to do it too much because then it, kind of ruins the flow of the story but uh one thing you actually do is you can save words or even whole phrases for later and then what i'll do is i'll go in after i watched a show or a movie and then yeah. i'll make flashcards and anki with those complete sentences and that way i have a contextual way to master those words instead of just individual out of context vocabulary which i think is an awful way to learn i agree i agree I, i'm pretty I think pictures for vocab or for nouns rather. Yeah. It's kind of nice. Pictures are great. Yep. Definitely. Um, Cause, cause you, cause you brought that up about uh, before we did this about like topics we might cover. And one was about how I study. Yes. And that was one thing I do think is big is no English. If you can do it. Yeah. And I, I like flashcards and like, if you want to study to get to that point, however it works for you. But I think for me, once I put them in there, just a f- some kind of picture or symbol to a noun. And then I'm pretty into like sentences and clothes stuff personally. Because mm-hmm. um, yeah, otherwise, I like when I went to Spain, as I was speaking about earlier, I just memorized loads of words and that was not useful at all. Right. Yeah. You have, you, yeah. The, I, the words are like bricks and then yeah. the, yeah, the yeah, grammar yeah. is like the mortar, right? And you can't, if you just stack up a bunch of bricks, it's going <laughs> to fall over, yeah. right? I've got a semi-truck just full of bricks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you need both, but yeah, yeah, definitely just words alone are not enough. That's um, interesting, though, about the Netflix thing. That seems – that combined with, yeah, just that alone, that seems great. It is it is nice. I mean, it is translation. Um, sure. So it is relying on English. But, but I think – this is where I've kind of gone full circle on this. I used to be very – adamant about sticking only to the L2, the target language yeah. all the time, and then yeah. inferring what's going on. I think what matters most, and this is a Stephen Krashen idea, uh, who's a 
pretty famous guy in the, the second language learning world. Okay. Uh, his whole thing was about comprehension. We learn when we understand, which is kind of this paradox, right? Because if you're new to a language and you, you don't know it, how can you understand it? And how can you understand it if you don't know it? So it, it does kind of create this tension. But I do think that some amount, like, for example, watching a Netflix movie or a TV series, at least your first time through, yeah, I think, I think it's okay to keep on what I do again with this thing. I have you have both the English translation and you also have the su- the subtitle. I guess it's actually not so. What is it? Um, captions and in the actual language of the movie itself. So if you're watching a Japanese show, you know it'd have the Japanese in kanji and then it'd have an English yeah. translation both. Yeah, and so. I do watch usually if I, ideally I'd watch something twice through first time I watch it through, I'd watch it with English. So I know it's happening. I have a good context and then watch again yeah. with just the Japanese subtitles. And then if you're really gung ho about this, you watch it a third time with no subtitles at all, just listening. And that way you're really, so you understand the context, then you're getting reading practice in Japanese and then you're getting listening practice. And I think that can be a really solid. That's, way to go. that's pretty clever actually. And you can get the, um, because it's spoken, you can get kanji readings you might not put together on exactly, your own. Exactly, exactly. That's, that's good. That's pretty good, John. Well, you know, trial and error. And it, it does take more time, obviously. And uh, But repetition, you know, this is like, I could think of no better way to get the kind of repetition you need to really master something without yeah. the boredom of just, just doing flashcards or something like that. It, it's kind of this nice, you know, authentic content way of getting the best of both worlds yeah 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 man so yeah that, no, i like it i like it yeah, yeah that sounds that sounds solid i'll probably steal that yeah check it out and, and there's so much content now in fact on netflix japan which you guys have access to over there which we yeah. can too with a with a vpn but that takes it makes things a little harder there's a lot of authentic you know original japanese content now they're putting out which is i've heard there's some great stuff so yeah and i think if you're you only need one really to get the basics of a language. And of course, like if you want to get into like psychological thrillers, it's going to require a lot of words, but that are very specific to that. But I think one book, one, you know, anything, one game, I remember playing the same video game over and over in Japanese until I could understand it. And then that made the second one a lot easier, but yeah, like you don't need to have a whole library of stuff. I don't think just the one that, yeah, pulls you in. Yeah, and in fact, I even think it's detrimental to have too many things because then you spread oh, yeah, yourself yeah. too thin or you feel overwhelmed and you just don't do any of it. So, yeah, going yeah. deep on one thing is is huge. And that's harder and harder because there is so much available these days. I mean, absolutely. Just Netflix alone. I mean, you if you type in just type in Japanese and Netflix in the American, you know, or wherever you are, Netflix, there's hundreds of titles. Yeah. Already. It's it's amazing. So, yeah. Yeah, pick one and do it. So yeah, so that's kind of good advice. Yeah, my good advice. Um, li- you know, listening to podcasts—that's always been something I've I've tended to do while I'm walking or doing dishes or other other things around the house to try to get in some listening. Um, yeah, talk talking to tutors. I was just gonna say, do you have any recommendations for podcasts and/or Netflix for any of your languages? Definitely. Yeah. Um, so Spanish right now, I'm really enjoying Money Heist on okay. Netflix, which is a, it's a sp- Spanish, you know, Spain, Spanish, Castilian Spanish, uh, obviously. 
but yeah. it's a, it's a really engaging show and it's very, uh, it's very addictive, which helps, uh, for Japanese. Uh, I had been recommending and I had been watching cause it was also addictive terrace house, which I know yeah. is very popular, but given the recent tragedy, uh, one of the participants in the most recent series, um, committed suicide. And, oh, Jesus. Yeah. And apparently part, a big part of it was that there was a lot of bullying, you know, cyber bullying going on related to something that happened on the show and what happened on the show. Apparently, uh, there was a little bit of manufactured drama. You know, they tell you it's unscripted, but that's not a hundred percent. Yeah. There's, there's yeah, definitely yeah. some, uh, manufactured conflict and stuff. So, so yeah, yeah I'm, I'm a bit remiss now to recommend that just because of, the awful real life consequences of what goes on. <laughs> we, I, I actually, I actually watched it a few years ago. Not that particular series. I thought the same thing, which was just like language wise. It's good. It's very casual, you know? Right. And that's why and I recommended it. Cause it was and it's, most, yeah, most stuff on, on Netflix. It's going to be like either intense adventure or, uh, yes, yes. You know, it's not going to be authentic stuff that you're going to need on a daily basis in Japan. So it's hard to recommend stuff that way. But, Especially like ca- casual speech like that is so different than even like televised. Correct. Like dramas and stuff. I think it's, it, yeah, it's quite different. So, but it did for me too. I also was like, um, and that's not hating on anyone that does like it, but I was kind of like, I don't want to be thinking of these people. I don't want to have a horse in that race is who yeah. they're going to, you know, like I've, I've, I can think of other stuff. Yeah. And I didn't, I, I don't know if I want that to be a big part of my life. I, I will say for compared to American reality TV, I found it a lot <laughs> okay. better. Yeah, um, yeah. Cause I, I even said like, I'm not a reality TV kind of guy. I've Just never less liked less pure toxicity. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's mild, <laughs> milder toxicity. It's sure. a toxic, toxic light. Uh, <laughs> But, but yeah, other things, I mean, I really, I loved, <laughs> uh, um, Samurai Gourmet, just very goofy and silly. And, uh, what's, what's that? I don't know. It's another is. Netflix show. It's, there's a, a salary man who ends up, you know, he, he retires from his job and suddenly he finds himself with all this time on his hands. And so he ends up, uh, it's just, it's all food porn. It's like complete, <laughs> you know, uh, you know food debauchery he basically just goes around and eats like all these amazing foods and things during the day because he has the time now you know he has a, a beer with his lunch you know for shame um what but, a rebel yeah but but what happens is they it's very interesting but they they sort of have he has this imaginary samurai who is unafraid to do these things and so there's usually a part in the show where like he's faced with some cultural dilemma about what to do or how to behave and he's he's tempted to sort of uh conform and, and give in but then he he suddenly there's the samurai there that does the thing he's scared to do or try and then he gets inspired and he does it. so you know it's it's silly it's goofy but i i enjoy it so it's about a hallucinating food. <laughs> hallucinating retired Just salary man with, de- with uh, debilitating mental illness yeah maybe that's a good point maybe, uh, no that sounds good that kind of stuff too i that sounds nice Especially during the age of COVID, yeah. I and even in English as well, I just want to hear comedies and stuff right now. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like 
the world does feel like it's ending some days. So. Yeah, that's true. So, yeah. yeah, that's something funny. Light. Um, okay. Samurai Gourmet. Samurai Gourmet. Um, oh, what about podcasts? If I can... Podcasts, yeah. yeah. So, so for Japanese, I really like um, the podcast called Nihongo Konteppe. And he, he's actually one of my tutors as well that I work with. He's great okay. on italki. Uh, oh, he, so you're active with you're yeah. active with italki? Yeah, yeah. Um, he Good job you. he's great, and I, I love it. He's I love his humor. I love his podcast. He lived in Spain also for a while, and so he's he's learned some Spanish. When I that's partly why I chose him because I thought it'd be fun to talk about learning Spanish in Japanese, just kind of as a shared you know context or interest. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he's great. He's really he's really funny. Um, okay. For Spanish, I, I really like the Duolingo Spanish podcast. I think Duolingo itself uh, is a far from perfect way to learn a language, but their podcast is actually really good. Uh, it's half English, half target language, so that you know okay. they give you context again, so you understand what's happening. Uh, it's intermediate Spanish, but because they, they do such a good job of storytelling, I'm able to understand a lot more than I probably should given my beginner level. So I, I really enjoy that. It's it's basically like an NPR. Great. It's like This American Life yeah. type stuff, type storytelling, really good narrative and and, and investigative stuff. Uh, but also breathy pronunciation stories. Say again. Breathy pronunciation. Uh, like this American life. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. Ira Glass speaking Spanish. That would be funny. <laughs> um, but no, it's just, yeah, it's really well done. And they also went for French as well. Very cool. Um, yeah. Those are kind of the ones that come to mind. Are you actively consuming any Mandarin media? Not as much. Uh, they're, it's harder. I've had a harder time finding shows or movies, for example, that I really connect with the same way. Um, and I don't know what that means, but I find it, I find it really easy to find really engaging content for Japanese and Spanish. You, you had said too, and you can edit this out if it sounds bad no. somehow to say it, but um, you had said that you felt more connection with Japan than Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's true. That's true. Culturally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love Taiwan. I had a, a phenomenal time. I mean, I almost married a Taiwanese woman. So like I had a very strong connection to that culture sure. in that sense, but yeah, but now I don't know. Yeah. I, I do feel a stronger pull culturally back to Japanese, but then also wanting to sort of dabble in some, you know, follow my curiosity as it were with, with Spanish and French and sure. Portuguese and other languages down the road. Do you have a good basis for those languages or have you sort of dabbled? Not really, no. Because uh, I remember being at your home and there's loads of language learning books and stuff. Yeah, a lot of those are aspirational. <laughs> okay, most of that's fair. I was... Yeah, yeah. No, I'd like like to learn. I mean, at some one of my life goals is to get to like 10 languages that I can at least have a conversation in. Yeah. Obviously, mixed levels, but... That's something eventually, yeah, I'd like to get to that level. Whereas now I'm at like 3.2. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dude, just that, man. Like, 
Even just learning a third language seems intense to me. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends on how far you go. I mean, trying sure. to, trying to get to the level in another language that you are now in Japanese, obviously, because you know what it took to get to where you are now. And so then imagining replicating that for another one. Yeah, that is that can be overwhelming or intense. But I, I, I mean, I'm setting my bar for fluency pretty low for these other additional languages. Just, you know, really being able to just to have a conversation, a short, yeah, get by flowing conversation. Have- exactly. Um, but again, it'd be dope though. Having, yeah, but uh, my goal there is, is fluency and not, uh, necessarily breadth or depth. And I, okay, I, okay. I think that that's, I think you can kind of, you can't have both in a short amount of time. You can kind of pick, um, and I'm okay with that. And I, but I also know now that if you really have an act, if you master the basics and you have active abilities around those basics and you're able to creatively talk around what you don't know, I think you can go really, really far. And that's what I've seen for a lot of these, you know, polyglots that I mentioned that I've interviewed. Yeah. They have that skill where they can, they can spend a week in a language and know a hundred words, but they're so good at using those hundred words and they, then they focus from the beginning on pronunciation, for example. So they pronounce those hundred words really well. And, and they're so comfortable with ambiguity and uncertainty that they're, they don't panic when they hear this stream of noise and they only pick out every third or fourth word. They're still okay. And they can use then those hundred words they know to, to ask or to clarify. Or okay, to, okay. It's sort of mean? move move laterally when you need to. Exactly. That, that kind of skill, that sort of, uh, I don't have that at all. Skill. Yeah. That sounds great. Well, and I, I didn't, I haven't, I'm, I'm trying to develop that. That's, that's not how I would, went about Japanese in the beginning. That's not how I went about Mandarin. That that's especially because like once yeah. you have a certain level, it's like, well, you, you get that ability, but people, if someone can do that from early on, yeah. Hats off, man. Right. Sorry to interrupt you, but no, no. Yeah. And think if you could, if you in, if in six months, you could get half. Think about this, right? If you could, if you get yeah. half of the, your ability now, in six months, half the practical ability. Yeah. Why not do that? You know, for at least for if you want to speak multiple languages. Now, again, it, this is kind of this law of diminishing returns thing. I think you can get really far, really fast in three months, and then pretty far in six months, and then every, you know, getting to like eighty percent, let's say fluency, you could probably do in. It depends on the language, depends on your how many hours a day you can spend. But let's say you can do that in a few years. Yeah. Then to go from 80 to 90, you're talking another probably three years. And then from 90 to 95, it's like five more years. And then that try to go from that 95 to, to 99, that's the rest of your life. Right? So I, I guess, it, and that's fine. Yeah, if, yeah. if you want to be, you know, the best American speaker of Japanese, for example, that learned as an adult, and that's all you ever want to do. Awesome. Go for it. But for me personally, I found like, okay, I, I want, instead of investing the rest of my life to get that last 20, 15, five, whatever the percentage is, I decided yeah. I want to, I want to spend some of the time to continue refining my Japanese, but I would much rather invest the time getting practical functional command of five or six or seven other languages for that same amount of time, if that makes sense. 
That makes perfect sense. And again, I did, I didn't walk away with very high Spanish skills or high level of Spanish skills, but I noticed being in Spain single at the time um, that my Japanese got a little weird the more Spanish I learned. But I was mm-hmm. super into studying Spanish, and I I really wanted to sort of tack into that direction mm-hmm. or towards that. But yeah, what, now being married to a Japanese person, I just want to know more about that. You know right. her experience and how she looks at the world. So right. it's like we, we were talking too. Even yeah. if we lived in Portugal or something, yeah, I will never have these conversations with anyone else. Right. So like, I'm just never going to learn anything to that degree. Yeah. Which is very interesting. Yeah. 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 You have a you have a different why, and yeah, yeah. And I think that's great. And I I think again going back to this bio individuality thing, you have to decide you know what what makes sense for you and your situation and your goals. And there is no one size fits all. There's no one path. And what my goals are, you know, have changed a lot. I, I did start off. I remember in college thinking like, I'm going to be so good at Japanese that I'm going to call someone on the phone and they're not going to know that I'm not Japanese. That's, that's it. That's the goal. You know, I started off with that and then, sure. and then you get going and you realize how, not only how unrealistic that is, but also how silly it is. Who cares? Who cares if they think I'm Japanese? And then, then what, right? Like what, what is the payoff for that? Yeah, yeah. Right? And then you're quickly like, I'm going to make ramen. Like, just, yeah. yeah. I want to have a conversation with somebody I meet, you know, at a... On the bus. On the bus. Yeah. Or yeah. whatever. It's like, that's that's great. That's enough. That's great. If we ever are doing like a couple's vacation with you and your other half, it sounds like in like 10 years, it sounds like you're going to be the interpreter. Oh, uh, I don't know. Again, I don't interpreting i you know it scarred me i don't <laughs> i'll do my best but that would be fun yeah well we should do a linguistic tour of the world or something phenomenal yeah i guess we'll, we'll, we'll be fairly focused on japan for our side of it but that's all right who knows? that's Maybe all right. we'll have spanish um in parting i wanted to ask too is your wife learning spanish with you or sticking with the russian stick with the russian she, yeah i mean okay. she did spanish in high school so she she has a fair amount of passive uh familiarity yeah. with it and, and so that's always fun I'll, i can say something that i've learned and then she'll understand it most of the time assuming yeah. i say it correctly um but yeah she's more she's more doing the russian stuff and it's cool i'm really proud of her she's been she's been really uh you know doing a lot of the <laughs> kind of stuff that i've talked about you know in, in this podcast or in my books and it's that's always the highest form of praise right when someone you care about actually takes the advice you've given. <laughs> oh yeah. And, yeah. and just, it's great to see for your partner. I imagine like anytime you see someone or just anyone you care about doing something like that, that takes yeah. a lot of work. It's great. Yeah. Also when you had us over for coffee, Rosemary showed me like uh, some books she had, which it was very cool to see. And she's very uh, enthusiastic, but I was like, I can't, un- I can't understand this. Like, Yeah. Was it? The, it I, I could just because we've talked about that before. Because yeah. I again study when I was younger. I've been to Russia. Yeah. She lived in Ukraine and stuff. But um, but yeah, I think her level. I was just like, yeah, I can't really keep keep up with the heroes. Like, <laughs> yeah, she's been watching like say. the there's like a nightly news cast that she's been watching in Russian in Russian with no subtitles. I mean, I, I mean, she's not oh. getting all of it, but she's not that level. But it's just the fact she's willing to do these things that that's amazing. That yeah. Most people just would find too uncomfortable unless they're at a really, really advanced level. And, Dude, you know, and yeah, from ex- my experience, it's not something you can pick out at all with the cases and everything. Like, yeah, it's 
hard. Yeah, I, I don't I know. You don't say hard, but um, for me, different. it's daunting. Where, it's very different. When I, <laughs> like, you know, we, we went to a French cafe or a French style cafe here, and they always have French radio playing. Uh-huh. You can pick out loads of words, right? Even though you don't know what they're saying, really. But just by being a native English speaker. Right. I have not found this with Russian. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, I don't know enough of it to, to have an opinion, really. But I can I can imagine. Yeah. It has been fun that I learned. I mean, I've learned a couple of phrases. You know, we'll always joke with each other, like, Yanishpion. What is spion? I don't know. Spy. I'm not a spy. <laughs> okay, that's fair, yeah. I'm sure my, my Russian listeners now have decided to never listen again because I just butchered their language. Also, like, that's clearly something a spy would say. So they probably right. just don't trust you, man. That's true. That's a good point. Mm. Now, now no one will ever know. Cover blown. Cover blown. Oh, man. I'll have to find a new gig, new family. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. Well, All right, well I've taken we... so much of your day already, and I appreciate it. And I'm sure that folks are going to get a lot out of this, especially our, our Japanese learner listeners and uh, aspiring translators. Yeah, any any last words of uh, of encouragement or or discouragement? Maybe like, no, don't become a translator. I you want it. this is all for you. Yeah, don't do it. No, um, don't do it. yeah, no, just like do stuff and not not like a a jerkish way, but like just try stuff and don't be a baby. You'll you'll make a lot of progress in a year. So if if you find yourself too sympathetic to yourself, maybe stop that. Yeah, there's there's a yeah there's a balance. Don't, don't be too hard, yeah, like, but also don't be too easy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like don't feel bad at any point because it's, it's language. It doesn't really matter, you know? It's not like your leg's falling off. Right. But um, don't think too much about how you don't need to feel bad. Just just learn or don't <laughs> learn. And when you're not learning, do something cool. Yeah, I like it. Make it make it binary. All right, man. Enjoy. Take care. Be safe. Thank you. You as well. All right. Thanks. Have a good night, John. You too. Thank you for listening. For show notes, go to languagemastery.com slash show. And if you'd like to support the show, there are two things you can do. Go to iTunes or wherever you listen to this podcast and leave a five-star review. Helps more people find us. Or if you're learning Japanese, go to japanesemastery.com and check out my Master Japanese Guide, which shows you exactly how to create an immersion environment no matter where in the world you happen to live.